Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, by Michael Hudson. Chapter 2, Breakdown of World Balance, 1921-1932. Nearly 80% of bond flotations in the United States during 1921-1925, and 60% in Britain, were by government entities, $3.6 billion in New York, nearly $2 billion in London. Table 2.1 Table 2.1 can be found on page 61 of the text. These sums reflected the magnitude of the post-war shift from private to governmental borrowings. Vast as these bond issues were for the period, they were insufficient to enable the European allies to pay their war debts to the U.S. government as repayment out of German reparations was not guaranteed. Foreign government borrowings in London of almost $2 billion, at a parity of $5 to the pound, were a mere 7% of the inter-ally war debts, and little more than 2% of the total inter-ally war debts plus German reparations obligations. Yet they overwhelmed private sector issues of $1.1 billion in London during 1921 to 1925. These were years of post-war recovery, of comparative prosperity for most of Europe. Yet the burden of inter-allied debts imposed by the United States compelled the governments of Europe, allies of the United States in World War I, to impoverish their national treasuries, to run deeper and deeper into debt to deprive their industries of needed credits, to limit their export potentials, and to leave a clear field for the United States to grow as a world power to any extent and in any direction its government desired. These were the years when the United States was given and earned the name Uncle Shylock, the policy of compelling the European allies, ultimately Britain, to continue after the war to meet capital and interest charges on war debts to the United States was a political aggression of the highest order, in violation of the implied promises made during the war by the United States to its allies. Keynes proved correct in his judgment that German society would buckle in its attempt to meet its reparations schedule. Germany succumbed to hyperinflation during 1921 to 1922, resulting from its attempt to pay reparations in foreign currencies by throwing more and more Deutschmarks onto the foreign exchange markets. To prevent this seemingly bottomless pit, an international economic conference had been convened in Brussels in 1920, and another was held in Genoa in 1922. In spirit, these two conferences were precursors of the 1945 Bretton Woods meetings, proposing many of the aims and principles endorsed after World War II by the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. They were followed by the Dawes Plan in 1924 and the Young Plan in 1929 to coordinate the payment of intergovernmental debts by Germany to the Allied powers, but they could not paper over the fundamentally untenable situation. Under the burden of reparations, Germany's economy was bankrupt by the greatest inflation in history, as the cost of imports and paying foreign currency debts soared in keeping with the mark's decline. The German middle class was wiped out, sowing the seeds for the fascism to come. Shortly after, Bonar Law became conservative prime minister of Britain 
In January 1923, he sent Stanley Baldwin and Montague Norman to Washington to negotiate the funding of Britain's war debt with U.S. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. Former Liberal Prime Minister Lloyd George, just displaced by Mr. Law, described the business transaction between Mellon and Baldwin as being in the nature of a negotiation between a weasel and its quarry. The result was a bargain which has brought international debt collection into disrepute. The Treasury officials were not exactly bluffing, but they put forward their full demand as a start in the conversations, and to their surprise, Mr. Baldwin said he thought the terms were fair and accepted them. If all business was as easy as that, there would be no joy in its pursuit. But this crude job, jocularly called a settlement, was to have a disastrous effect upon the whole further course of negotiations on international war debts. The United States could not easily let off other countries with more favorable terms than she had exacted from us, and as a consequence the settlement of their American debts by our European allies hung fire for years, provoking continual friction and bitterness. Equally, the exorbitant figure we had promised to pay raised by so much the amounts which under the policy of the Balfour Note we were compelled to demand from our own debtors. Footnote 1. Lloyd George the Truth About Reparations and War Debts, London, 1932, pages 116 to 120. End of footnote 1. As matters worked out, the United States agreed to fund the debts to her of our continental allies on terms markedly more favorable than she had granted to Britain. The sums funded over time stood as follows. To view table, see the text. Page 63. The total sum due from Britain, including interest, amounted to over twice as much as its original debt, having been settled at nearly twice the interest rate agreed to by Belgium at over twice the rate agreed to by France, Yugoslavia, and Italy, although identical with the 3.3% charged to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Estonia, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Hungary for balances due on their arms purchases. That was the price paid for being the first country to break European ranks and sign its separate peace with the United States government, all in the name of preserving the sanctity of debt, as if Britain and its fellow Europeans were still world creditors. Here was certainly a case of economic ideology failing to keep pace with the evolution of national self-interest. Probably, the Council on Foreign Relations remarked, the pact had more significance as a determinant of war debt policy than any other factor. It bound the other debtors by example to the principle of war debt acquittance. It put the American policy in a groove of formalism. It set the pace of treatment of other debtors by allowing of no other deviation than capacity to pay. Even so, opposition developed in the Senate against any ratification of the agreement. Not that it was felt to be too onerous, it was felt to be too lenient. Footnote 2 American Foreign Relations, page 427F, end of footnote 2. Mr. Mellon was clearly overjoyed. In the Combined Annual Reports of the World War Foreign Debt Commission, he concluded, We have, I believe, made for the United States the most favorable settlements that could be obtained short of force. The only other alternative which they, i.e. critics of the settlements, might urge is that the United States go to war to collect. Another observer, Newton Baker, called the American principle of debt collection the amount thought possible of collection without causing revolutions in the paying countries. Footnote 3, Ibid, page 434F, 
quoting the combined annual reports of the World War Foreign Debt Commission, Washington, 1927, page 597, also Ibid, page 460, end of footnote 3. Perhaps the worst psychological consequence of the war debts, observed the Council on Foreign Relations, was to keep alive the question, who won the war, with its implicitly self-righteous answer. It would seem that general bankruptcy should have attended the long-deferred day of reckoning for some of the Allied states. This was the outcome predicted by many observers who in pre-war days had freely proclaimed the economic impossibility of waging a world war such as overtook mankind in 1914. Footnote 4, Ibid, pages 461 and 406, F. End of footnote 4. But unlike the situation with private debtors, there was to be no bankruptcy among national states. The American government refused to relax its untenable demands upon its European allies. A 1929 observer remarked that, An American banker whom I saw today held the extreme view that ultimately Europe would declare war on the United States to repudiate her debts. A contemporary asked whether, We can be perfectly certain that Germany will go on cooperating, helping, and pursuing a policy of peace and reconciliation, and turning her back on the policy of militarism and reaction. He believed that a victory for Germany's right wing was imminent as pressure built up to stop its reparations payments. It will not mean a return to immediate armament by Germany. It will not mean an immediate outbreak of war, but it will mean the reversal of the present German policy of constructive cooperation in the building up of world peace. Footnote 5. Mr. Deverall's comments on H.R. Brand's paper, The Reparations Problem, Opere Citato, page 226, and Professor Baker's comments, page 221F. End of footnote 5. The burdens imposed by intergovernmental finance thus prepared the ground for future war, much as Lenin had anticipated that private capital and its growing concentration must do. In fact, to many observers, the hope for peace seemed to lie precisely in a restoration of international claims and investments to private hands. At the end of 1927, wrote the Council on Foreign Relations, it was the hope in Europe that the United States would join in a scheme of readjustments of both debts and reparations by transplanting them from the political bed of intergovernmental relationships to a wider field where they would be absorbed by private investors in the world markets of international finance. The idea was gaining ground in the United States, but the approach of responsible opinion, while recognizing the advisability of taking debts and reparations out of international politics, was lukewarm to European suggestions of a conference. It was felt that such a conference would seek to disturb settlements that are considered inviolable. An international conference could only call this inviolability into question. Perhaps, the Council speculated, Germany might deliver negotiable securities to the Allies who would then market them for cash and ask the U.S. Treasury to make a once-and-for-all cash settlement for the proceeds. Intergovernmental claims thus would be limited to the private sector's ability to finance and transfer them. Gerard Winston suggested at a University of Chicago roundtable conference that war debtors could very well approach the United States Treasury and suggest canceling future installments of the debt settlements by discount for cash. At reasonable current interest rates, the discount would reduce payments for the later years of the term to quite attainable figures, and the menace of a continuing burden on generations not yet born would end. Footnote 6. American Foreign Relations. Page 462F. End of footnote 6. 
Furthermore, U.S. investors would probably be the major purchasers of the Allied bond issues, just as Germans subscribed to a great indemnity following the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 to 1872, as did Englishmen in 1816 to 1817. To be sure, this would displace private corporate borrowing for productive purposes, but it seemed unlikely in any event that business expansion could persist without resolving the problem of intergovernmental debt service. In short, Whereas the hope for world peace prior to World War I, as voiced by Kotsky and others, lay in the prospects for intergovernmental cooperation, this now seemed dashed. Lenin had rejected Kotsky's prescription, which he called ultra-imperialism, on the ground that it was an unattainable ideal. Cartels and the governments they influenced could not cooperate because of the constantly shifting relative power among firms and nations, even at the monopoly level. Governments would tend to break any agreement as their actual economic strength outgrew the constraints of past international agreements. But world power was now being concentrated in American hands, despite the desire by other governments to shift this power from the United States towards a more balanced and multicentric world. World balance was prevented largely by U.S. intransigence regarding the inter-allied debts and its insistence that this problem had nothing to do with that of reparations. Foreign governments acquiesced, at least for the time being. Whatever the new system was, it was no longer dominated by private sector finance capital, unless one insists on viewing the breakdown of world finance created by the inter-allied debts, the stock market crash of 1929, and the Great Depression as policies supported by finance capital. To be sure, the disenfranchisement of private capital was in large part the result of a war whose motivations stemmed largely from competition of international capital, but the consequence of this war was a system overburdened by intergovernmental claims and debts. The results were not what any pre-war observers had anticipated, including those in the socialist camp. The destructive effect of the post-war intergovernmental debt system was aggravated by the fact that its financial claims had no counterpart in productive capital resources, leaving no real means by which it might be paid. It was rather a calculation of the cost of destroying Europe's resources. Keynes was quick to dispute the false analogy between the sanctity of private productive investments and the more tenuous post-war intergovernmental claims, and to deride the typical banker's view that a comparable system between governments on a far vaster and definitely oppressive scale represented by no real assets and less closely associated with the property system is natural and reasonable and in conformity with human nature. An old country could develop a young country by private investment to bring productive resources into being so that the arrangement may be mutually advantageous and out of abundant profits the lender may hope to be repaid but the position cannot be reversed. A young country such as the United States could not expect the older countries of Europe to be capable of outproducing her to the extent of generating a salable export surplus sufficient to amortize the heavy inter-allied debts and at the same time to meet internal needs. If European bonds are issued in America on the analogy of the American bonds issued to Europe during the 19th century, the analogy will be a false one, because, taken in the aggregate, there is no natural increase, no real sinking fund out of which they can be repaid. The interest will be furnished out of new loans, so long as these are obtainable, and the financial structure will mount always higher, until it is not worthwhile to maintain any longer the illusion that it has foundations, the unwillingness of American investors to buy European bonds is based 
on common sense. Footnote 7, Keynes, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, page 281, and A Revision of the Treaty, London, 1922, page 161. End of footnote 7. Europe could raise the funds necessary to amortize its inter-ally debts by generating a payments surplus with the United States in two ways. By expanding exports to it, that is, by making incursions into U.S. markets, and by borrowing from U.S. investors. As Frank Tussig emphasized, certain lines of American industry will experience additional competition from their European rivals. Consequences of this sort, even though less in quantitative importance than is commonly supposed, must be faced as a probable result of the debt payments. Footnote 8. Frank Tossig, The Inter-Allied Debts, Atlantic Monthly, 139, March 1927, quoted in Gerald and Turnbull, Selected Articles on Inter-Allied Debts and Revision of the Debt Settlements, New York, 1928, page 461, end of footnote 8. Commerce Department theoreticians suggested that the United States would have to evolve into a trade deficit nation in order to finance its receipt of debt service from Europe. If the European governments that have not yet started to pay their debts to the United States government should do so, there can be little doubt that imports of merchandise would regularly equal or exceed exports, as is usually the case with creditor countries. Footnote 9. U.S. Department of Commerce, The Balance of International Payments of the United States in 1923, Trade Information Bulletin, Number 215, April 7, 1924. See also the 1924 report, page 27, end of footnote 9. These theoreticians accepted as axiomatic that debt repayments to the U.S. government must take precedent over other concerns, including some shift in trading patterns between the United States and other countries. The primacy in finance of government over private interests was made nakedly obvious. The dilemma for the United States lay in the contradiction between the role of world usurer played by the U.S. government as an autonomous economic institution and the injury this must inflict upon domestic industrial interests, and hence upon the nation. If European imports into the United States were to grow large enough to enable payment of the war debts. The government attempted to resolve this contradiction by insisting that this was the problem of Europe, not of the United States. Europe was told to meet its debt obligations, not by expansion of overseas commerce, but by limiting consumption in order to raise a surplus out of which to meet its debts. Footnote 10. Jacques Roof and Bertel Oland were the major proponents of this idea, which the IMF has adopted as part of the absorption approach underlying its austerity programs. I review the long literature in Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, Dresden, 2009. End of footnote 10. To monetize the output diverted from domestic consumption, Europe must sell abroad what it saved, but not in U.S. markets. Refusing to permit Europe to pay off its World War I debt by exporting more goods to the United States, America raised its tariffs in 1921 specifically to defend U.S. producers against the prospect of Germany and other countries replacing domestic U.S. production by depreciating their currencies under pressure of their foreign debts. Footnote 11. See, for instance, the U.S. Tariff Commission's monograph, Depreciated Exchange and International Trade, 2nd edition, Washington, 1922. End of footnote 11. In May of that year, prices had begun their collapse in the United States, 
following the drying up of European markets that had been supported by U.S. war and victory loans. An emergency tariff on agricultural imports was levied, followed in 1922 by the Fordney Tariff, which restored the high level of import duties set by the Payne-Aldrich Act of 1909. Tariffs on dutable imports were raised to an average 38%, compared to 16% in 1920. The government of the United States after World War I thus established the precedent that, through government international finance capital, the United States would shape the direction of growth in world commerce and simultaneously the consumption functions of other nations. U.S. tariffs served the double purpose of sheltering domestic industries and influencing the direction of world trade, each within the context of the paramount needs of intergovernmental debt service. Minimizing consumption in Europe increased both the margin out of which debt payments could be made and the creditworthiness of Europe so that Europe could borrow in U.S. capital markets, further facilitating principal and interest payments on the intergovernmental debt. Even more devastating to foreign trade, the American selling price features of the 1909 Payne-Aldrich Act were restored as the equalized cost of production principle and applied to a number of commodity categories. This meant that tariffs were levied not according to the value of imports as charged by foreign suppliers, but according to the value of similar goods produced in the United States. The legislation made it virtually impossible for other economies to undersell U.S. producers in the American market. The president was authorized to raise tariffs wherever existing duties were insufficient to neutralize the production cost advantage that other countries enjoyed, thereby denying in law the competitive advantage that demands for reparations debt service was creating by forcing their exchange rates to depreciate. These U.S. acts blocked both Germany and the Allies from obtaining the dollars necessary to pay their intergovernmental debt by running a trade surplus with the United States, on the ground that such trade would displace American labor. The alternative for foreign government debtors was to raise the funds by new private sector borrowings in the United States. Labor spokesmen endorsed this policy of European borrowing in the U.S. private sector instead of selling more products to the United States. Matthew Wohl, vice president of the American Federation of Labor, recognized that the United States government was only going through the motions of collecting these debts. Europe is going to pay with one hand and borrow back with the other and go on using the capital just the same. It is better for us that it shall be so, instead of actually receiving payment in goods that would interrupt our own industries. I think it is a safe guess that 50 years from now, the United States will have more loans and investments abroad than it has had today, including these debts, and this will mean that we will not have received actual payment of these debts. They will only have changed their forms. Footnote 12. The Effect on American Workers of Collecting Allied Debts. Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, 126, July 1926. Quoted in Gerald and Turnbull, Opere Citato, page 473F. End of footnote 12. The transformation of intergovernmental debts to private debts took the form of a triangular flow of payments. Funds flowed from the United States to Germany, from Germany back to the European Allies, and from these back to the United States. During 1924 to 1931, U.S. private investors lent $1.2 billion to German municipalities and industries, and other countries lent an additional $1.1 billion. Footnote 13. The United States in World Affairs, 1931, page 145. End of footnote 13. 
The Reichsbank used these dollars to pay reparations to the Allied powers. Some went directly to Britain, others to France to be used by France to pay Britain on its wartime loans. Britain and the other European allies then paid the funds to the U.S. government to service their war debt. Intergovernmental claims thus became partially supplanted by, and integrated with, private investment capital and by inflating the american credit base europe's debt repayments provided u s investors with still more funds to lend to germany and other european countries this circular flow of payments was maintained precariously but with no realistic hope of it functioning perpetually the assets required to underwrite the debt simply did not exist as keynes riley described the situation the European allies, having stripped Germany of her last vestige of working capital in opposition to the arguments and appeals of the American financial representatives at Paris, then turned to the United States for funds to rehabilitate the victim in sufficient measure to allow the spoilation to recommence in a year or two. Footnote 14. Keynes. The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Page 284. of footnote 14. For Germany and the Allies, wrote another economist, the only incentive to agree to pay is the opportunity to get new private loans not otherwise obtainable. The U.S. stake, from the beginning, was represented by the sum we could persuade our debtors to pay us, while not permitting our demands to rise so high as to prevent settlement and delay the restoration of international trade and commerce. We had nicely to appraise the relative values of old debts and new business. Footnote 15 Frank H. Simons, Debt Settlements, American Review of Reviews, 73, February 1926, page 155, quoted in Gerald and Turnbull, Opere Citato, pages 423 and 425. End of footnote 15. U.S. interest rates were held down, in part by the inflationary money creation facilitated by the Treasury's receipt of foreign debt payments. As is normal in such situations, the credit inflation made its first appearance in the money and capital markets. Prices for stocks and bonds were bid up considerably before commodity prices began to rise. By 1928, nearly 30% of bank assets were devoted to broker loans to finance stock market speculation, requiring only 20% down payment, with favored customers putting up as little as 10% of the price of their stocks. As rates on call loans ran above other market rates by wide margins, funds were drawn into the New York stock market from all over the country and from financial centers abroad, much of it in the form of short-term funds. This became a major factor curtailing new American loans to Europe and to Germany in particular, loans without which U.S. export trade could not be financed, and without exports there could be no American prosperity, at least not without a sharp economic readjustment. Stocks and bonds soared even as earning power was threatened by the situation that was developing. An extraordinary volume of new issues of common stock was floated toward the end of the boom. $2.1 billion in 1928 and $5.1 billion in 1929 as compared with a total of $3.3 billion in 1921 to 1927 and the later post-war peak of $4.5 billion, $2.65 billion net change in 1961. Footnote 16. Gerald and Turnbull. Opere Citato. Page 100F. End of footnote 16. 
After 1926, the Federal Reserve System helped Britain hold the pound sterling at its overvalued pre-war level by promoting low interest rates in the United States via a policy of monetary ease. As long as British interest rates exceeded those of the United States, Britain was able to borrow the funds needed to sustain its inter-ally debt transfer. Thus, American support for the pound sterling in 1927 implied low rates of interest in New York in order to avert big movements of capital from London to New York. But low interest rates fueled a stock market boom on credit. To deter this financial distortion, America herself was in need of high rates as her own price system began to be perilously inflated. This fact was obscured by the existence of a stable price level maintained in spite of tremendously diminished costs. Footnote 17. Carl Polanyi, The Great Transformation, 1944, Boston, 1957, page 26. End of footnote 17. The attempt by the U.S. government to hold down domestic interest rates in order to help foreign governments maintain their inter-ally debt service set in motion responses that prevented this process from continuing. The problem was that rising U.S. interest rates kept American financial credit at home instead of seeking higher returns abroad. This deprived Britain of the ability to borrow the money, mainly from U.S. lenders, to pay its war debt. As long as America lends freely to the world and thus gives the nations greater buying power than otherwise they would have, wrote George Pache in 1927, Great Britain will be able to continue to buy from America and to sell to other nations, but should anything occur to cause American investors and bankers to stop their loans to foreign countries, Great Britain's position would become most precarious if a time should come when Britain's credit is exhausted and she is forced to reduce her purchases to the limit of her selling power, less her reparation and interest payments, then the full consequences of the impoverishment of the German people will be experienced by other nations. Footnote 18. George Pache, The Road to Prosperity, London, 1927. Pages 17, FF, 25, and 34 through 37. Quoted in Joseph S. Davis, The World Between the Wars, 1919 to 1939, Baltimore, 1975. Page 176. End of footnote 18. The U.S. financial sector had become responsible not only for its own prosperity, but also for that of its debtors, including indirectly Germany. The government could collect on its inter-ally debts only so long as its own investment bankers and other investors provided the funds. To be sure, the longer this process continued, the longer it seemed that it could go on forever. Economists even began to speak of a new era of world prosperity rather than examining the shaky foundations on which the world's growing debt pyramid rested. Above all, how this speculative prosperity undercut the world's financial equilibrium. American investors turned from foreign bonds to American stocks, since that was where the greatest gains were to be made. The rise in stocks brought European funds into the American market. The cessation of lending drew gold to balance the accounts. The combined effect was to force a contraction of credit in the outer world, which undermined gold prices. A year later, international prices fell so rapidly that they impaired the position of the debtors. This, in turn, forced a further contraction of credit and set prices and credits spinning in a vicious spiral of deflation. The depression, which had begun in the far corners of the world in 1928, reached the United States and Europe in 1929 to 1930. 
Footnote 19, Council on Foreign Relations, The United States in World Affairs, 1933, New York, 1934, page Roman numeral 11, end of footnote 19. Private funds flowed increasingly from foreign stock markets to the U.S. market. Abroad, stock markets had peaked in Berlin in the spring of 1927, in London and Brussels in April and May 1928, in Tokyo in midsummer 1928, in Switzerland in September 1928, and in Paris and Amsterdam early in 1929. Not until September 1929 did the U.S. stock market turn down, and following Black Friday on October 24th, the New York market collapse accelerated further declines abroad. The London Economist reported in December, Wall Street speculation ceased to be a national and became an international problem, and one that affected London, the world's financial center, most of all. Footnote 20. Davis, The World Between the Wars, pages 198 and 101, quoting The Economist, December 7, 1929, page 1069, FF. End of footnote 20. During 1928 to 1929, the circular flow of payments between the United States and Europe began to break down. U.S. private purchases of foreign bonds slowed when the stock market boom increased domestic capital investment. The subsequent market collapse erased lendable assets. Finally, the Great Depression itself, the product of the impossibility of pyramiding debt to infinity, ended the first great swelling of intergovernmental claims in bankruptcy on a world scale. First came the problems associated with sterling, towards whose stability the British government had sacrificed the nation's living standards in a deflationary process in 1926. A higher value for sterling meant that a given amount of British pounds would exchange for a greater number of dollars and thus pay off a larger value of dollar-denominated debt. However, this high exchange rate for sterling worked to price British exports out-of-world markets, reducing Britain's ability to earn dollars and other foreign exchange. Also, the high British interest rates that supported sterling's exchange rate deterred new domestic investment. The attempt to solve this problem by making labor bear the cost, keeping domestic wages down, internal deflation, led to a wave of strikes culminating in the general strike of 1926. The American economy itself was distorted by keeping interest rates low so as to prevent the dollar from rising against foreign currencies. As noted above, that led to a domestic credit bubble that culminated in the 1929 stock market crash. Insisting on European payment of the inter-allied debts, while refusing to open U.S. markets to enable debtor countries to generate the earnings with which to pay these debts, caused the domestic economy to destabilize. On the one hand, low U.S. interest rates did encourage foreign lending to higher-yielding German, British, and other allied debt markets, helping these countries stabilize their exchange rates. But U.S. low interest rates also fueled a debt-driven U.S. stock market bubble, along with debt pyramiding throughout the domestic economy. Despite the fact that the U.S. economy was much less exposed to the vicissitudes of international finance and trade movements, than other countries relative to the size of its national income and wealth, its financial practices were much more highly pyramided. Checking accounts were used more in the United States than abroad. Furthermore, 
the years of monetary ease in the United States had spurred a tripling of consumer debt and security loans, mortgage debt, and nearly all other forms of credit during 1921 to 1929. This pyramiding was now called in by the banks. At a time when most home and farm mortgages came up for renewal every three years, contributing to a wave of foreclosures in the wake of stock market margin calls. The financial wreckage left the Great Depression in its wake. The United States thus became a major victim of its own intransigence with regard to the inter-allied debt problem. Its national income fell by $20 billion in 1931 from a $90 billion level in 1929, losing, in a single year, three times as much as the whole capital value of the war debts due to her, and nearly 80 times as much as the total of one year's annuities. Footnote 21 Lloyd George, The Truth About Reparations and War Debts, page 125. End of footnote 21. Its exports and domestic tax revenues fell correspondingly. The illusion that Europe could settle its war debts and reparations on a workable basis by borrowing from U.S. investors ad infinitum was shattered. What had actually happened was that they were supported by an increasingly dizzy structure of private debt. It was a structure which could stand only so long as it was raised higher and higher. By June of 1931, the whole structure was in collapse, threatening to bring down with it in one smash all the public and private debts of Germany. Footnote 22. The United States in World Affairs, 1933. Page 162. End of footnote 22. President Hoover declares a moratorium on German and inter-allied debts. On June 5, 1931, Germany appealed to the world to forego demand for reparations payments. Andrew Mellon, still Secretary of the Treasury, met with President Hoover on June 18th and convinced him that Germany could not possibly meet its scheduled payment. A number of leading financial houses and banks in New York were heavily involved in the German bond market and were threatened with bankruptcy in the event of a wholesale default by Germany. Footnote 23. Wheeler Bennett, The Wreck of Reparations, page 50. End of footnote 23. The president held a series of cabinet meetings and met with Republican and Democratic congressional leaders to obtain general endorsement of a one-year postponement of all payments on intergovernmental debts. This became his moratorium plan of June 20th which froze all private as well as governmental short-term German liabilities. He emphasized, however, that he did not approve in any remote sense the cancellation of debts to the United States of America. True, he acknowledged, the basis of debt settlement was finally to become the capacity under normal conditions of the debtor to pay. I am sure that the American people have no desire to attempt to extract any ounce beyond the capacity to pay. But every ounce up to that point would be expected. Yet to Europe, the term capacity meant capacity to pay out of reparations receipts. To America, it meant the capacity to pay out of ordinary budgets, assisted preferably by cuts in arms expenditures. Footnote 24. Ibid, page 161. End of footnote 24. Nonetheless, Hoover's announcements made stock markets jump throughout the world and improvements in foreign exchange conditions more than repaid the United States for the loss of the nominal $250 million sum of funds foregone. 
footnote 25, Ibid, page 53, end of footnote 25. The winding down of intergovernmental claims thus had a salutary initial effect on the network of private international finance capital. However, letting Germany off the hook shifted the focus of world anxiety to London. Publication of the Macmillan Report in July 1931 disclosed that Britain's foreign short-term credits amounted to over four hundred million pounds, as against her realizable short-term foreign claims of only about fifty million pounds after deducting the uncollectible Central European claims. On July 13th, the day the Macmillan Report was made public, the Donat Bank closed its doors. A run on sterling dislodged its exchange parity, and European exchange rates began to collapse under the accumulated debt burdens of the preceding decade. Footnote 26, Ibid, page 98. The Hoover moratorium had come too late. As in a Greek tragedy, inexorable forces were set in motion. To begin with, Britain's devaluation impaired Germany's export potential. British coal, for instance, became cheaper than German coal so that German ships took on British coal at Rotterdam rather than buying domestic German coal in Bremen and Hamburg. To make matters worse, many German firms had carried on their business in sterling and suffered considerable loss when its exchange rate fell. Footnote 27, Ibid, page 103F. End of footnote 27. These events triggered a worldwide tariff and devaluation war. Britain abandoned the gold exchange standard, followed by Scandinavia, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and Finland, along with Portugal, Greece, Egypt, Japan, several South American states with major trading ties to Britain, and by the British Commonwealth generally. These nations formed a de facto sterling area, capable in principle of turning the tables of international economic power against the gold standard countries led by the United States and France, which together were left with 80% of the world's monetary gold. But what good was this bullion if an alternative instrument, paper sterling, were to become acceptable by most of the world in preference to continued subservience to gold? That potential contributed to Anglo-French and Anglo-American economic tensions. Fear of a new world trading system based on devalued sterling underlay much of President Roosevelt's subsequent hard line towards Britain. How could this deterioration of the world economy have been avoided? The German government scarcely could have worked harder to meet its reparations obligations. Throughout the 1920s, there was little talk of suspending these payments, and Germany's political parties vied to devise ways in which the payment schedule might be met. Footnote 28. See, for instance, Verhandlungen der Sozialisierungskommission über die Reparationsfragen. Two volumes, Berlin, 1921. End of footnote 28. The European allies also tried their best to service their debts to the United States. This is not to say that they were blameless in their relations with Germany. The Poincare government in France was especially vindictive, and after occupying the Ruhr in 1923, replied in the following words to Britain's protest over this act, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In strict accordance with the precedent established by Germany in 1871, the Ruhr district will be released only when Germany pays. The Reich must be brought to such a state of distress that it will prefer the execution of the Treaty of Versailles to the conditions created by the occupation. German resistance must cease unconditionally, without any compensation. Germany's capacity to pay cannot be established at all in the present confusion in her economy. 
Furthermore, it is absurd to fix it definitely, as it is continually changing. The German government will never recognize any amount as just and reasonable, and if it does, it will deny it on the following day. In 1871, nobody in the world cared whether France considered the Treaty of Frankfurt just and possible of execution, and what about the investigation of Germany's capacity to pay by impartial experts? What does impartial mean? Who has to select the experts? Footnote 29, quoted in Karl Bergman, The History of Reparations, New York, 1927, page 200. End of footnote 29. The Allies were extortionate in their ways of exacting tribute from Germany, but they were acting under the force majeure imposed by America's insistence that their war debts to the United States be paid to the last cent, including interest. Because the U.S. government was the ultimate claimant on all war debts, the failure to achieve a realistic solution to the transfer problem must be attributed to U.S. policy. Footnote 30. Like many third-world debtor countries today, Germany could not inflate its way out of debt because the debt was denominated in dollars or other foreign currency which the German central bank, the Reichsbank, could not print. Central banks can create domestic currency, but not the dollars and other hard currencies necessary to pay foreign debts. Likewise, they cannot increase domestic taxes to pay their foreign currency debts because taxes are levied in local currency. This is what anti-German hardliners such as Jacques Roof and Bertel Oland failed to see. At issue was what Keynes called the transfer problem in the 1920s when the European allies demanded that Germany wreck its economy to pay reparations. It was all in vain. Keynes showed that unless the allies agreed to buy German exports, there was no way the Reichsbank could create the dollars to pay. End of footnote 30. With regard to world indebtedness, the United States had adopted a double standard. Under the Dawes Plan, Germany was protected against enlargement of the real burden of her reparations payments by a fall in world commodity prices relative to the dollar or, more properly, relative to gold. The Dawes Plan stipulated that the German government and the Reparation Commission each have the right, in any future year, in case of a claim that the general purchasing power of gold as compared with 1928 had altered by not less than 10% to ask for a revision on the sole and single ground of such altered gold value, and that, after revision, the altered basis should stand for each succeeding year until a claim be made by either party that there has again been a change since the year to which the alteration applied of not less than 10%. Footnote 31. Quoted in Harold G. Moulton and Leo Poslovsky, War Debts and World Prosperity, The Brookings Institution, Washington, 1932, page 168, end of footnote 31. In part, this provision of the Dawes Plan recognized that the sum of reparations payments by Germany, as fixed under the plan, was the absolute maximum which the Allies could extort. It was, in fact, beyond the capacity of Germany to pay. Certainly, any increase in the real value of reparation debt must impoverish Germany to the point of national exhaustion. Hence, the protection extended to Germany against the terms of trade turning against her as between the changing values of commodity exports and fixed gold mark reparations payments. 
Similar treatment was not accorded to the Allies with respect to their debts to the United States. The latter refused even to contemplate that, given a fall in world prices, a rise in the value of gold, as measured in commodities, the inter-allied debts, which amounted in fact to Britain's debts to the United States, could no more be paid by Britain than reparations by Germany. American policy was to treat Germany, the recent enemy, as a country in need of protection against the effects of a fall in prices, but to treat Britain, the recent ally, as a nation to be trodden down if a fall in world prices should occur. The recent enemy was to become a ward of the U.S. government, the recent ally to be punished. Because this ally was the world's great imperial power, and Germany its recent challenger for imperial supremacy, the interpretation is justified that the United States had set its eyes lustfully on the British Empire. To swallow the empire, the United States must first dislodge it. Britain must be forbidden, the fruits of victory, Germany established again as its rival. This selfsame policy would recur after World War II. World debt had become, and was used as, an instrument of power by the United States against its only rival, the British Empire. Britain was held responsible for payment to the United States of Germany's reparation equivalents to Belgium, France, and Britain, whether or not Germany could and did make such payments. The British debt was to be increased in real value if commodity prices should fall, but Germany's debt to Britain, both direct and indirect, was to be substantially preserved in terms of its commodities equivalent. The derailing of international debt service prompts controversy. For a decade, the world's debt overhang had been kept afloat by the expedient of yet more debt. Private U.S. lending provided dollars that followed a triangular route to German municipal and private borrowers, through the German Central Bank to the governments of Britain, France, and other allied powers, who recycled the dollars back to the United States. But the Great Crash of 1929 extinguished vast pools of paper capital, drying up sources of international borrowing. In 1931, international short-term debt was reduced between 33 and 40 percent, withdrawing about $6 billion from commercial use in the debtor countries. Footnote 32. Council on Foreign Relations, the United States in World Affairs, 1932, New York. 1933, page 109, end of footnote 32. The reduction would have been much greater had it not been for the standstill agreements under the Hoover moratorium that froze short-term loans to Germany. The effect in any case was violently deflationary, collapsing world prices and trade. Foreign countries were unable to raise the foreign exchange needed to repay their intergovernmental indebtedness either by increasing their exports or by borrowing new private funds. Finding itself almost unable to borrow abroad, Germany reduced its reparations payments. In 1932, it cut back its debt service transfer, first by half, then by 70%. Meanwhile, Britain's attempt to continue paying its share of the inter-ally debts, despite the slowing of reparation payments from Germany, forced down sterling's value, at the same time that British domestic prices were tumbling. The decline in world prices increased the real burden of war debt service because the transfer requirements needed to satisfy the debt schedule increased, as measured in commodities, as the dollar prices of these commodities fell. 
Since the various installments of that debt were negotiated and spent in this country, our price level has fallen by perhaps 50%, thereby approximately doubling the actual payments demanded. Footnote 33. James Harvey Rogers, America Weighs Her Gold, New Haven, 1931, page 201. See also pages 145 and 152. Rogers's book on The Process of Inflation in France, 1914 to 1927, New York, 1929, is a definitive treatment. End of footnote 33. Yet the U.S. Congress was adamant that the Hoover moratorium was merely a one-year postponement, neither a cancellation of foreign indebtedness to the U.S. Treasury, nor in any way contingent on Europe's success in extracting further reparations from Germany. On December 10, 1931, President Hoover reassured Congress that reparations are a wholly European problem, with which we have no relations. In fact, when the Brookings Institute published Harold Moulton's analysis of the French war debt problem, leading the Foreign Debt Commission to scale down the U.S. claims on France, Hoover told a press conference that Moulton represented a liability to the United States to the extent of $10 million a year in perpetuity. Footnote 34. Davis, The World Between the Wars, 1919-1939, page 408. End of footnote 34. True. He subsequently asked Congress to re-establish the Foreign Debt Commission with a possible eye to scaling down the debts, but his request was in vain, despite support by Senator William Borah, known as the Lion of Idaho, as chairman of the Committee on Foreign Relations from 1924 to the time when Franklin Roosevelt took office in 1933. The representative American view was epitomized in ex-President Calvin Coolidge's terse comment, We hired them the money, didn't we? Footnote 35 Wheeler Bennett, The Wreck of Reparations, page 163, end of footnote 35. On December 17th, the House Ways and Means Committee reported, It is hereby expressly declared to be against the policy of Congress that any indebtedness by foreign countries to the United States should be in any manner canceled or reduced. A minority report criticized President Hoover for proposing the reparations and debt moratorium in the first place, without first having consulted the full Congress. Finally, on December 22, 1931, the Hoover moratorium was ratified, although Congress charged the nation's European debtors 4%, on the ground that this was the rate at which U.S. Treasury bonds were then selling. This somewhat awkwardly obliged the Allies to turn around and renegotiate their waiver of German reparations under the Hoover Plan, increasing the rate of interest charged on Germany's postponed payments from 3% to 4% and raising interest levies on their mutual indebtedness by an equal amount. As noted above, Britain finally was forced to abandon the gold exchange standard in September 1931. Its attempt to service its debt to the United States had resulted first in a deflation of its domestic prices, stemming largely from the government's budgetary needs to raise the sterling equivalent of its debts to the U.S. government, and then, despite this deflation, a collapse of its currency against those of other nations as it converted sterling into dollars. This transfer payment aspect of the debt problem disturbed Europe's economies even more than their domestic budgetary problems. The Lausanne Conference Proposes to Settle the Debt Tangle 
at the Lausanne Conference in summer 1932, a half-year after the Hoover Moratorium, it was clear that the Allied powers could not extract any more funds from Germany, and they turned to save themselves from their own debts to the United States. Germany proposed a lump-sum final settlement of its reparations, and Italy's foreign minister proposed on July 4th that war debts and reparations be wiped off the books altogether. But the European allies reasoned that they hardly could afford to give up German reparations if the price would be a stripping of their own gold stocks, to continue paying for a war whose economic aftermath they now wanted to end. Also, Premier Hero of France pointed out that cancellation of reparations without a corresponding readjustment of Allied war debts would place Germany in a privileged position. Footnote 36. The United States in World Affairs, 1932, page 142F. End of footnote 36. The European allies ended by agreeing to cut German reparations by nearly 98%, from $30 billion to about $700 million, conditional on the United States reducing its own claims on the allies. German reparations would be effectively ended by making the half-year-old Hoover moratorium permanent, on the condition that the U.S. government would waive its inter-ally debt claims. With a motto sanctified by the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Britain and France signed an addendum to their agreement with Germany, stipulating that, if a satisfactory settlement about their own debts is reached, the aforesaid creditor governments will ratify and the agreement with Germany will come into full effect. But if no such settlement can be obtained, the agreement with Germany will not be ratified, a new situation will have arisen, and the governments interested will have to consult together as to what should be done. Footnote 37. Wheeler Bennett, The Wreck of Reparations, page 234, end of footnote 37. Ariot announced in an interview with the newspaper La Intransigeant, what must be clearly understood is that the link is now clearly established between the settlement of reparations and the solution of debt problems with relation to the United States. Everything is now subordinated to an agreement with America. Footnote 38. Quoted in Ibid. Page 168. End of footnote 38. But Congress and the executive branch once again refused to go along with this linkage principle. American politicians accused Europe of forming a united front against the United States. It was an election year, after all. The Lausanne Conference disbanded in some disarray as American anxiety began to be awakened with regard to the prospect of British and French trade resurgence. U.S. officials began to worry that they had pressed their creditor position too far in forcing Britain and its empire off the gold standard for this freed Britain, its Commonwealth, and associated sterling area countries to create their own commercial bloc if they so chose. Almost immediately, they did exactly this. At the Ottawa conference convened by Britain to establish a generalized system of Commonwealth tariff preferences, with the potential of extending their trade and currency system to any nation choosing to adhere to the sterling bloc. Even before the Ottawa conference, American economic antagonism toward the British Empire was apparent. In the Senate debate on the Hoover Moratorium, Senator Reed of Pennsylvania dismissed as silly the idea that payment of war debts could present any great difficulty to a country like Great Britain, owning far-flung colonies, 
holding funds all around the circle of the globe, with museums stuffed with art treasures worth millions and millions. Footnote 39, quoted in the United States in World Affairs, 1932, pages 177 and 172. End of footnote 39. The implication was that Britain should sell these artworks, along with its colonies, to pay what remained of its war debt. The drive to break up the British Empire had thus begun in embryonic form. But so reluctant was Europe to recognize this ultimate policy intent, still only in its germinal stage, that the only response was an angry editorial in the Times of London denouncing the suggestion that Britain ship its National Gallery and the British Museum to New York in partial satisfaction of its debts. The Hoover Moratorium expired on June 30th, 1932, one year from its implementation. The first payment due was that of Greece on July 1st. The Greek government notified the Treasury Department that it would take advantage of a clause in its agreement with the United States permitting it to postpone payment for two and a half years, with interest to accrue on the postponed amount at four and one-fourth percent. Smaller debtors followed suit. The Hoover administration recognized the need to negotiate some longer-term resolution, toward which a preparatory commission of experts met at Geneva in autumn 1932. The U.S. representatives were John H. Williams, a respected Harvard economist specializing in balance of payments analysis, who had worked for some years as a consultant to the New York Federal Reserve Bank, and Edmund E. Day. One important development in the intergovernmental situation is indispensable, their report stated. A definitive settlement of the war debts must be clearly in prospect, if not already attained, before the Commission comes together again, with a satisfactory debt settlement in hand or in the making, and with a willingness on the part of two or three of the principal powers to assume initiative in working out a program of normalization of the world's economic order, the next meeting of the Preparatory Commission may be expected to yield highly important results. Footnote 40, Department of State, Report of American Delegates to the Preparatory Committee of Experts on the World Monetary and Economic Conference, page 7, quoted in Raymond Moley, The First New Deal, New York, 1966, page 39, end of footnote 40. The report was not released publicly in view of the nationalistic feelings of most voters, but Hoover and his cabinet saw the handwriting on the wall and planned to implement its recommendations. Their stance was shaped by the fact that the balance of forces dealing with the inter-allied debts involved more than just the European and U.S. governments themselves. Private bankers also had an interest in alleviating the burden. Intergovernmental debt service had thoroughly crowded out private lending. Whereas private loans had played a facilitating role prior to 1929, the crash had destroyed capital and debt-paying power from one economy to the next. That forced a choice to be made between Europe paying either America's government or, potentially, its bankers. Enlightened and compassionate as the bankers' internationalist position may have been, it therefore was not entirely altruistic. They favored international debt leniency on the part of governments for much the same reason they did in 2000 when they urged that governments, the World Bank and IMF, forgive the official debts owed by the poorest third world countries. Their objective was not so much to let these debtors off the hook as simply to remove governments from their senior status as first claimants on the export revenues and foreign exchange generated by debtor countries selling off their public domain to pay foreigners. 
Government forgiveness meant that all the available revenues of the poorest countries would be freed to pay to large private global creditors. Farm interests also had a stake in alleviating Europe's debts. For the more it had to pay in debt service, the fewer dollars it could raise to buy U.S. farm output. However, noted Raymond Moley, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's advisor on the debt issue, the debt payments are relatively unimportant in comparison with the interest on the private debts, foreign bonds, etc., and the payments on short-term bank paper, of which 800 millions about, are in New York. Footnote 41. Moley. The First New Deal. Page 26. Citing a memorandum Burrell prepared for him on November 15th, 1932, in preparation for the meeting between Hoover and Roosevelt described in the next chapter. End of footnote 41. The issue of the primacy of intergovernmental or private finance capital thus became the determining issue one or the other had to give. The question was whether intergovernmental debts or private loans would suffer, Favoring private creditors, Hoover and his Republican cabinet were amenable to seeing the government relinquish its claims on Europe. Roosevelt and his economic nationalists put the public sector's interest first, that of private creditors last. To Moley and Rex Tugwell, two of the leading members of Roosevelt's Brains Trust, that was the essence of the New Deal's political philosophy— Tugwell pointed out that one reason why the Eastern Establishment's bankers favored cancellation, or at least a major reduction of the debts, was that it would help revive their own international loan business. That was the essence of their internationalist position. Even though the debtor countries were able to pay their installments, the international bankers wanted the government debts out of the way to help the revival of their own business abroad. Footnote 42, Ibid, page 25F, citing Rexford Tugwell, the Democratic Roosevelt, Garden City, 1957, page 256, end of footnote 42. The prospect of negotiating a settlement of European debts was disrupted when Roosevelt defeated Hoover by a heavy plurality in the presidential election held on Tuesday, November 8, 1932. The Democrats also captured the Senate and House of Representatives, giving the White House control over policy. No mention of the war debt issue had been made at the Republican National Convention held in June 1932, but the Democratic Convention formulated a plank, registering opposition to their cancellation. Allied debt payments were scheduled to begin falling due just two days after the election, starting with Greece's November 10th payment on its non-postponable payment of $444,920. It defaulted. That was not unexpected in view of its June request for a postponement. More unsettling that day was the fact that the British and French ambassadors had called on the Secretary of State, Henry L. Stimson, to ask for a review of the entire question of debts and, pending such a review, for a postponement of the installments due on December 15th. Their notes demanded not only that the debt payments due on December 15th be deferred, but that we review the whole debt situation with debtor nations. 
Stimson described this demand as a bombshell, but urged Hoover to take a lenient line toward the debts, hoping to avoid the outright break with Britain and other debtors that defaults would cause. In fact, reports Mully, Stimson was not happy about Hoover's determination not to cancel the debts without an adequate quid pro quo or about the president's refusal to link the debts with reparations. Footnote 43. Ibid, page 22F and 43F citing Stimson's diary in the Yale University Library, end of footnote 43. Roosevelt, Moley, and Tugwell took a much less internationalist position, reflected in Moley's complaint that Stimson's professional life had been that of a New York lawyer in close contact with the great international financial and cultural community that centered in that city. He leaned heavily upon advice from New York, especially from the partners of the Morgan Company. As a result, Stimson's sympathies for any relationship with the New York banking community were greater than Hoover's and Treasury Secretary Ogden Mills's. Footnote 44. Ibid. End of footnote 44. Roosevelt's supporters, especially from the western silver states, were soft-money populists, sympathetic to debtor-oriented inflationists, as the West owed money to the East Coast bankers. America's leaders thus looked first to the domestic economy, not anticipating the scope of the world's financial problems or grasping the extent to which the nation's hard line toward European war debts would provide new impetus urging the continent toward a renewed nationalism and autarky that would culminate in World War II. America's reasoning was not devilish as far as it went, but it did not go far enough. Europe did everything it could to avoid defaulting on the tangle of reparations and inter-allied debt payments in the absence of U.S. permission to stop payment. Such permission was not given. America left Europe virtually no alternative but to pursue creditor-oriented deflationary policies at first and protectionist and nationalistic policies after the dollar was devalued in 1933 to 1934. Domestically, the United States adhered to a much more populist, debtor-oriented economic philosophy than did Europe, but internationally, it held to a hard creditor line. End of chapter 2 Super-Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire by Michael Hudson Chapter 3. Power Through Creditor Status, 1932-1933 I shall spare no effort to restore world trade by international economic readjustment, but the emergency at home cannot wait on that accomplishment. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Inauguration Speech, March 4, 1933 It is not the job of political leaders to adopt economic policies based on broad principles that appear to best serve the world as a whole. Voters expect heads of state to pursue the national interest. Farsighted leaders may look to the long run rather than pursuing merely transitory advantages, and the long-term position no doubt is helped by growth in the world economy. But the means to such growth reflect a composite of calculated pursuits of national interest, not its subordination to the advantage of other economies. 
no nation has shown itself more aware of this distinction between national self-interest and cosmopolitan ideals than the united states this is partly because of congressional veto power over foreign policy it is hard enough for the executive branch to mobilize u s policy even at the national level answerable as it is to congressmen and senators representing their local interests as a result politicians since the civil war have set aside protectionist policies to pursue the goals of more open trade and markets currency stability and the responsibilities of world leadership only when these policies have been calculated to support america's own prosperity when economic expansion at home has called for federal budget deficits monetary inflation competitive devaluation of the dollar agricultural protectionism industrial trade quotas and other abandonments of internationalist principles the united states has been much quicker to adopt nationalist policies than have other industrial nations also important to understanding america's singular approach to international relations is the sheer size of its home market u s economic policy traditionally has looked to this domestic market as the main spring of economic growth rather than depending on foreign markets for its major stimulus this policy of self-reliance was what john hobson had urged upon europe as an alternative to its attempts to monopolize foreign markets through the colonialism that helped bring on world war one in this respect american isolationism contained an element of idealism and even anti-militarism at least as expressed by the american school's economic theory european countries historically have been more internationally oriented that has led them to formulate their policies in terms of symmetrical economic rights so as to provide a basis for nations voluntarily trading lending and investing with each other in order to widen the overall market to be sure there has been a recognition that free trade favors the lead nations just as free capital movements favor creditor powers but faith in automatic tendencies to stabilize in the face of any magnitude of debt was shaken by the inflationary excesses of the debt burdened in nineteen twenties and the shift of world economic momentum from trade to finance during the nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties these developments prompted france britain and other countries to view currency stability as a precondition for stable trade and prosperity europe's internationalist emphasis followed from the fact that foreign trade represented a much higher proportion of its national income than that of the united states twenty to twenty five per cent compared to just three to four per cent for america but although europe sought to achieve stable exchange rates as a precondition for business revival there was little understanding of the role that debt service played in the balance of payments currency values and hence import prices the resolution of the inter-allied debt and related trade problems foundered on the idea that all debts somehow could be paid by economies adjusting roosevelt's election signified an about-face in u s policy that had been on the way to making the economic accommodation with europe that most economists and certainly most europeans believed was inevitable to the incoming democratic administration nothing was inevitable least of all a relinquishing of america's creditor hold over britain france and the rest of europe roosevelt's advisers were shown financial facts that indeed seemed to speak for themselves up to june fifteenth nineteen thirty one we had received seven hundred fifty million on principle and one billion nine hundred million in interest footnote one cited in raymond moley 
the first new deal 1966 page 25 end of footnote one interest charges thus were nearly two and a half times as large as principal payments europe was on a financial treadmill as its debts mounted up unpaid and indeed were unpayable without access to u s markets and markets elsewhere to displace american exports one alternative was a large-scale government intrusion into property relations by sequestering private european holdings to pay the u s government throughout roosevelt's twelve-year administration the united states adopted this socialist position of urging foreign debtor governments to nationalize properties held by large corporations in order to turn them over to the american government to be sure the united states intended to turn around and sell off these enterprises to private sector u s buyers but hoover and his cabinet had not been prepared to initiate this government intervention to shift assets to the u s creditor economy an indication of roosevelt's willingness to break from the traditional worldview is reflected in moley's sarcastic remark that the collapse of the system of international economics which had up to that time prevailed hardly meant the end of civilization those to whom the gold standard and free trade ideals were the twin deities of an unshakable orthodoxy the international bankers the majority of our economists and almost every graduate at every eastern university who had dipped into the fields of foreign relations or economics had undertaken to discover a remedy for it by common consent they had settled upon the reparations and the war debts if these were cancelled these particular debts among all debts public and private or traded for general european disarmament or british resumption of the gold standard or what not we would root out the cause of our troubles they had announced and so ponderous were the arguments that buttressed this formula in the atlantic states in academic and presumably intellectual circles at any rate that it was actually unrespectable not to accept them only their prospective dupes the majority of american citizens stubbornly refused to swallow them footnote two moley after seven years new york nineteen thirty nine page sixty nine this is the most extensive report on the tumultuous first half year of the roosevelt administration's financial negotiations with europe moley's the first new deal nineteen sixty six is an elaborated second edition of the former that sequel took into account sources published during the intervening generation and it discussed the day-to-day -day politics of how america handled the inter-allied debt problems in a more philosophical light the following description of u s debt and financial negotiations with europe follows these two narratives see also the u s department of state's foreign relations of the united states nineteen thirty three and the memoirs of herbert face rex tugwell herbert hoover and cordell hole end of footnote two roosevelt and moley certainly had no intention of being so duped although roosevelt was elected president on november eighth nineteen thirty two he did not take office for nearly four months until march fourth nineteen thirty three this interregnum reflected one of the american political system's distinguishing features a survival from an epoch when rapid transportation had not yet developed to carry newly elected officials to washington from as far away as california even though air transport has become the norm today it still takes nearly two months for the new u s president to take office after being elected the intervening four months left the hoover administration in a lame duck position threatening to disrupt the diplomacy in progress regarding the world war one debts 
European diplomats and Hoover himself wanted to know the intentions of the incoming administration. The problem was so pressing in view of the British and French notes of November 10th that two days later Hoover sent a telegram to President-elect Roosevelt asking for a meeting to discuss the foreign debt issue. The moratorium to which Congress had agreed a year earlier had expired, and large payments were scheduled to fall due on December 15th headed by $95.5 million from Britain and $19.3 million from France. Roosevelt and his advisors were surprised to get Hoover's telegram. Such joint meetings between the outgoing and incoming president seemed unprecedented. It was apparent that Hoover wanted to commit Roosevelt to a debt settlement that the Republicans had been negotiating out of sight of the voters. Roosevelt did everything he could to avoid being saddled with responsibility for the December 15th problem of what to do when Europe refrained from paying its scheduled resumption of inter-allied debt payments. He could not very well refuse to meet with Hoover, but he did not want to commit himself to being a part of the solution toward which Hoover seemed to be moving vis-a-vis -vis Europe. We were profoundly certain that the foreign protestations of inability to pay were in large part untrue writes Raymond Moley, whom Roosevelt had invited to the meeting with Hoover. Even if they were not, we knew of no trade for the war debts, which seemed advisable, as advisable at least as keeping the debts alive to remind our debtors that they were going to find it pretty difficult to finance another war in this century. Footnote 3, Ibid, page 70. This position of Moley, Tugwell, and other advisors set the tone for U.S. policy over the remainder of the 1930s, the guiding idea was that Europe would have the money to pay its debts if it would stop arming. The U.S. government should not give up its financial claims just so that Europe could use the money to rearm. And as noted above, Europe was reminded that it could raise the money if it chose to requisition private holdings. What makes these U.S. attitudes so striking today is that almost no European except Charles de Gaulle made such demands on the U.S. in the 1960s, despite the fact that most Europeans disagreed with America's military activities in Southeast Asia. This contrast between the 1930s and 1960s should be borne in mind when reviewing the American diplomacy leading up to World War II. It shows how difficult it is to gain international acquiescence to change underlying financial and property structures. Moley, a professor of public law at Columbia University, was appointed Assistant Secretary of State to serve as a personal advisor to Roosevelt. His designated duties were to include the handling of the foreign debts, the World Economic Conference, supervision of the Economic Advisor's Office, and such additional duties as the President may direct in the general field of foreign and domestic governments. Footnote 4. Moley, After Seven Years, pages 81 and 116 and the first new deal page 60 end of footnote 4 as an isolationist he did not want to serve under secretary of state cordell hull a single-minded free trade internationalist from tennessee who gave up what was in effect a lifetime senate seat to serve in roosevelt's cabinet but roosevelt picked moley precisely for his to hell with europe attitude and kept him independent of hull roosevelt meets with hoover to discuss the debt problem. Roosevelt was well aware of the ideological gulf between himself and Hoover when, on Monday, November 14th, he sent a telegram accepting Hoover's invitation for a wholly informal and personal meeting on November 22nd, accompanied by Moley, but not Hull. 
Hoover was joined by Treasury Secretary Mills, but not Secretary of State Stimson. Moley describes Hoover as plunging into a long recital on the deck question. He spoke without interruption for nearly an hour. Before he had finished, it was clear that we were in the presence of the best informed individual in the country on the question of the debts. His story showed a mastery of detail and a clarity of arrangement that compelled admiration. He started by explaining that, our government is now confronted with a world problem of major importance to this nation. While he did not favor debt revision in itself, he was willing to bargain if, in compensation for some readjustments on our part, we should receive benefits in an expansion of markets for the products of our labor and our farms. Footnote 5. Moley. After seven years. Pages 71 and 73. For a later version of this episode, see The First New Deal, pages 23 to 33. End of footnote 5. The question was, what trade concessions did foreign countries really have available to give America? Roosevelt and Moley complained that Britain's budget had failed to provide for the debt payment. Why had the Hoover administration made no attempt to bring up the issue? The debt agreement stipulated that questions concerning adjustment of the debt should be brought up 90 days before payment was due. But this period had passed, and Britain and France had not sent notes to the State Department until November 10th. Had Hoover promised these countries that if he were re-elected he would pressure Congress to forgive the debts? If so, how had he planned to get Congress to approve of such a settlement? Finally, and this was the core of our doubts and misgivings, we wondered if there was any truth in the rumor that the president had promised French Premier Laval or Prime Minister MacDonald when these gentlemen visited him that he would attempt to bring about a complete readjustment of the debt situation. Men close to Laval openly made this claim. The British seemed to believe it. I was later flatly told by three of the highest British officials that such had been the import of President Hoover's conversations. Footnote 6. Moley. After seven years... Page 71F. See also The First New Deal, page 26. That book's appendix reproduces a list of the questions that Roosevelt wrote down on index cards for discussion with Hoover. End of footnote 6. Laying out the common ground between his views and Roosevelt's, Hoover described the inter-allied debts as indeed being normal business obligations, not political debts, but the way the United States could best negotiate them was indeed political, on a country-by-country-that-is-divide-and-conquer basis. Treating each country individually and bargaining for trade concessions or other benefits in exchange for relinquishing America's debt stranglehold. Hoover even argued that the Allied debts were not related to reparations receipts from Germany, a link that would have let the Allies off the hook from paying the United States once Germany stopped paying them. America had played no role in setting reparations but had simply sold arms on credit and then provided post-war aid. On the other hand, Hoover pointed out the fact was indeed that the debtors simply could not meet their scheduled December 15th payment. Britain had only $78 million available. If it threw more sterling onto the market to buy dollars, the pound would decline, forcing the dollar up and with it U.S. export prices relative to those of Commonwealth producers. Then, describes Moley, 
Mr. Hoover moved to one of those plausible generalizations into which he so frequently fell. Either cancellation or default, he said, would shake international credit, and that would cause economic shivers to pass through this country. Footnote 7. Ibid. Page 74. Thus, while both cancellation and default ought to be avoided at all costs, we could not insist upon payment without extending some hope of revision or re-examination unless we wanted to force the European nations to establish a united front against us on economic questions. The price of this policy would be grave repercussions, both here and abroad. Hoover, therefore, wanted to revive the debt commission called for at Lausanne the preceding summer for which his administration had been preparing, and he was not amenable to Roosevelt's intention of using public regulation to shift power into the hands of government agencies to the executive branch. Roosevelt, for his part, rejected Hoover's emphasis on restoring financial normalcy. His solution was to regulate business, whereas Hoover took the political, legal, and public regulatory structure for granted. The idea of business as usual, Roosevelt believed, had brought on the Depression, which was the result of structural problems stemming from the concentration of financial power. Hoover reports that he concluded the meeting by asking Roosevelt to join him in calling for a meeting with congressional leaders of both parties, which I would call for the next day at the White House, where we would jointly urge the reactivation of a war debt commission. This would at once display our united front in the foreign field. Footnote 8. The Memoirs of Herbert Hoover Third, New York, 1952, page 179, quoted in Moley, The First New Deal, page 28. End of footnote 8. But without Roosevelt's support, he recognized, he could not get the congressional assent that was needed to wind up the debt issue. Hoover therefore invited Roosevelt to join with him in naming a bipartisan government commission to negotiate with Europe. That was just what Roosevelt did not want. He said that he could not be a party to giving up the December 15th payments, although he granted that if these were made as a show of good faith, he would agree to discuss future adjustments through action of the executive, at such time as his own administration took office. A settlement would take considerable time to work out, the kind of stall people use when they are not prepared to let an issue be brought to a head. Hoover and Mills were visibly annoyed, Moley reports. They had hoped that Roosevelt would prove receptive to Hoover's general conclusions about the dreadful urgency of the problem. They had hoped that he would go along on the debt commission proposal. The atmosphere became tense, as their attitude toward Moley turned from contempt into cold anger as the afternoon passed. Footnote 9. Moley, after seven years, page 76. Footnote. End of footnote 9. They could not understand Roosevelt's refusal to see what to them was obvious regarding the debt problem, that America hardly could expect to restore trade while the international financial system remained deranged by debts far in excess of the ability of countries to pay. The press was informed that Roosevelt had accepted the idea of continuing diplomatic negotiation on debt revision, but not the Hoover proposal to revive the debt commission. The East Coast papers denounced his rejection of Hoover's internationalism. 
Much of the blame was put on Moley, whom Roosevelt had chosen precisely for his rejection of internationalist principles. Six years later, as war was breaking out, Moley still believed that the refusal to accept Hoover's proposal was the first spectacular step Roosevelt took to differentiate his foreign policy from that of the internationalists. It was a warning that the New Deal rejected the point of view of those who would make us parties to a political and economic alliance with England and France, policing the world, maintaining the international status quo, and seeking to enforce peace through threats of war. Footnote 10. Ibid. Page 78F. End of footnote 10. Lacking Roosevelt's support, Hoover felt obliged to reject European requests that its debt payments be postponed. On November 23rd, the day after he met with Roosevelt, Stimson replied to the French and German notes of November 10th, explaining that only Congress, not the President, had the authority to suspend the December 15th payments, and that any relationship to German reparations was solely a European question in which the United States is not involved. The notes reminded the European allies that their debts must be treated as entirely separate from reparation claims arising out of the war. As the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations summed up the situation, in Great Britain, Yugoslavia, Finland, Greece, and other debtor nations, an additional increase has occurred in consequence of currency depreciation. With the pound sterling at par, the British Treasury needed twenty million pounds to purchase the dollars required to pay principal and interest falling due in December nineteen thirty two. With the pound sterling at three dollars and twenty two cents, it needed nearly thirty million pounds. Footnote eleven Council of Foreign Relations, the United States in World Affairs, nineteen thirty two, page one hundred eighty nine. End of footnote 11. Calculated in sterling, Britain's debt to the United States increased as it forced down the value of its currency by throwing sterling onto foreign exchange markets for dollars. The effect was to make Britain's debt transfer an infinite function, much as Germany's had been a decade earlier. To U.S. arguments that debtor countries could honor their international obligations only if they would reduce their armaments expenditures, the debtors replied that they could not take steps to stabilize their currencies until their war debts had been reduced to workable levels. On December 1st, a week after receiving Stimson's reply, Britain informed U.S. officials that it deplored their demand to be paid in full, and concluded with the veiled threat that if war debt payments were to be resumed, the United Kingdom would have to strengthen its exchange position through measures further restricting British purchases of American goods. Footnote 12. Moley. After seven years. Page 84F. End of footnote 12. The effect of this warning was much like that of today's third world countries arguing that if America insists on payment of dollar loans, it must open its agricultural, textile, and steel markets to debtor countries and let these countries protect their markets from U.S. suppliers. On December 11th, a follow-up note from Britain said that it would make the scheduled payment due on the 15th, but would view it as a capital payment of which account should be taken in any final settlement. Stimson replied that the United States could not accept conditions imposed outside of the original payment agreement. Britain paid anyway, but insisted on the right to bring up at a future conference the idea of counting its debt payment as reducing the principal. This at least would have converted the debt effectively into an interest-free obligation. 
That is what friends traditionally do amongst themselves. But power politics was at issue, not friendship. France defaults and Britain insists on a debt renegotiation. Britain paid in full on December 15th, but France defaulted, claiming that suspension of its payment was the normal, equitable, and necessary sequel to the Hoover moratorium. What infuriated U.S. officials was that, unlike Britain, the French had the money and could have paid in their view, but chose not to do so as a matter of policy. Britain had never made the debt issue so categorical. It had asked politely hat in hand for debt forgiveness, not insisted on this imperiously, as if it were a matter of obvious common sense. The Chamber of Deputies authorized payment only if the U.S. would join an international conference designed to adjust all international obligations. Footnote 13. Moley, after seven years, page 85, and the first New Deal, page 38. End of footnote 13. Britain, with its good behavior that had been so pleasing to the Americans, exemplified precisely what the French wanted to avoid. Yet Premier Hérault paid a steep price, as his government fell when he failed to persuade the Chamber of Deputies to follow the British course. Another step was being taken on the path leading toward World War II. On December 16th, Moley and Tugwell were presented with the Williams Day report that had been prepared for Hoover's intended follow-up conference to Lausanne. Moley was alarmed to see that it took just the opposite position from the priority Roosevelt and Congress wanted to give to the domestic market. It indicated that out of the meetings of experts was going to come an internationalist's agenda, a program for a return to an international gold standard, for the sharp writing down of international debts, and for measures of international cooperation wholly incompatible with the inauguration of the New Deal's domestic program. Footnote 14. Moley, After Seven Years, page 86. See also The First New Deal, page 39. End of footnote 14. Roosevelt believed that domestic recovery must take precedence over international concerns. Economic restructuring at home would cure the Depression, the restructuring that the New Deal promised to bring about, not a revival of foreign trade. Moley was sick at heart upon hearing from Geneva that Professor Williams had said that he personally believed that a debt settlement was the chief contribution that the United States could make to the conference. He worried that Europe might succeed in bamboozling America at any such international meeting. The more we'd considered what might come of the conference, as a matter of fact, the less importance it seemed to have to the United States. As the agenda for the conference offered no real prospect of substantial benefits to this country, why then bother it with it at all? Why not simply demand continued payment? In the winter of 1932 to 1933, our problem was to make them understand plainly that we saw what was up and refused to be out-traded, and our immediate task was to resist the efforts of their sympathizers in this country to persuade us that there was an inseverable relation between debts, world economic recovery, and disarmament. Footnote 15. Moley, after seven years, pages 95 and 87F. End of footnote 15. On December 17th, 
Hoover sent a lengthy telegram to Roosevelt, pointing out that the debts could not be dissociated from the other problems that would come before the economic conference, and that the conference should be assembled as soon as possible. Picking up the argument that he had made at their November meeting, he once again urged Roosevelt to join with him to select a delegation to make progress in reducing the level of intergovernment debt. Footnote 16. Moley, The First New Deal. Page 39F. C. Hoover, Memoirs. Volume 3. Page 185FF. End of footnote 16. But Roosevelt would not go along. So two days later, on December 19th, Hoover found himself obliged to announce in a special message to Congress that the government had declined to grant Europe the requested postponements. As we considered that such action would amount to practical breakdown of the integrity of the agreements, would impose an abandonment of the national policies dealing with these obligations separately with each nation, would create a situation where debts would have been regarded as being a counterpart of German reparations and indemnities, and thus not only destroy their individual character and obligation, but become an effective transfer of German reparations to the American taxpayer, would be no relief to the world situation without consideration of the destructive forces militating against economic recovery, would not be a proper call upon the American people to further sacrifices unless there were definite compensations. Footnote 17, quoted in The United States in World Affairs, 1932, pages 177 and 172. End of footnote 17. Roosevelt replied to Hoover's message that day, reiterating that he looked upon the three questions of disarmament, debts, and economic relations as requiring selective treatment and that there was no reason to submerge the economic conference in conversations relating to disarmament or debts. There was a relationship, but not an identity. As Moley put matters, the British wanted to establish, if possible, the theory that unless debts were settled there could be no possibility of agreement on other economic questions, but we could take in good part this natural attempt of the British to outtrade us without falling for it. And what was there to be gained by rushing into a conference with people who had championed the substance of the British proposals even before the British had made them? All negotiations should be put on hold until after March 4th, when a strongly democratic Congress would be put in place, immune to such internationalist anglophilia. Footnote 18. Moley, after seven years. End of footnote 18. Seeing a crisis brewing with Europe, Hoover suggested on December 20th that Roosevelt pick an advisor, someone knowledgeable, about international affairs, such as Owen Young, Colonel House, or, presumably, nearly anyone other than Moley. Roosevelt granted that the British were probably entitled to special consideration because we had been less lenient with them than any of our other debtors in the debt settlement but he insisted that any debt negotiations after March 4th would have to be conducted by the officials he had appointed. As for the economic conference, the topic of debts was a disruptive side issue that should not be brought up. Creditors never want to hear about why debtors can't pay, after all, preferring to focus single-mindedly on the debt that is owed. 
Roosevelt's main concern was the U.S. economy in any event, and he decided that no further meetings with Hoover, Stimson, or others were necessary regarding the debt issue prior to his taking office in March. Led by the Morgan partner Russell Leffingwell, the Wall Street internationalists tried to promote Norman Davis, a State Department Democrat, to a position of influence. Moley was sure he wanted to get the debts out of the way to facilitate reviving private lending to Europe. The Eastern banking interests had come to view the interest of the U.S. government as creditor as antithetical to their own ambitions. Roosevelt chose to dispense with Davis's advice after letting him tag along with Moley and Tugwell on January 20th to meet with Stimson at the State Department to compose a reply to the British regarding the agenda for the economic conference planned for London in the summer, and Davis sided with Stimson's position. At that meeting, the prospect of negotiating a quid pro quo with Europe was discussed, and Tugwell repeated Roosevelt's argument that U.S. economic recovery did not really need tariff concessions from Britain or France. What was needed was a revival of the domestic economy. The Americans recognized that to concede that German reparations could not be paid would open the door for the Allies to claim that this would deprive them of the money to pay their own World War I debts and would demand U.S. concessions to bring their own debt service with in their ability to pay. Stimson's diary for that day reveals that in a talk with Owen Young in New York, Britain hoped for an independent settlement of the debt question without any concession in return. Tugwell and Moley refused to authorize a statement acknowledging that America would address the debt problem at the London conference. Wanting to narrow the agenda solely to tariff and trade matters affecting the local interests with which voters and congressmen were concerned, they insisted that Stimson's reply to the British reject the idea that concessions on the debt issue might form the basis for currency stabilization. And while the major internationalist U.S. newspapers might agree with public opinion in Europe not to pay the war debts, Congress was not about to let Europe off the hook. In a huff, Stimson accused Tugwell of trying to tear down everything I have been working for in my whole term, and said he would leave a memorandum in the State Department files registering his mature judgment that another course would have been preferable. Footnote 19. Moley, after seven years pages 97 to 100, and The First New Deal, page 52 FF, citing Tugwell, notes from a New Deal diary, page 71 FF. End of footnote 19. Moley writes that he didn't give a hoot and was glad to see the liberal internationalist wing of the Democrats shunted onto a political siding including Secretary of State Hull, who served as little more than protective coloration for the New Dealers. On January 24th, having been apprised of the stalemated State Department meeting, Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, Neville Chamberlain, gave a speech taking the position that the settlement of the debt to the United States must be both small and final, and not offer any commercial quid pro quo. A showdown was clearly in the making, and Roosevelt's team, for its part, did not intend to give an inch. When Britain's ambassador Ronald Lindsay was called back to London for consultation, Roosevelt suggested to Stimson that it might clarify matters if Sir Ronald first came to have a talk with him in Warm Springs, where he was resting up. Lindsay arrived on January 28th and was subjected to a discussion outlining the U.S. logic that Europe could pay if it would cut back its military spending, and was reminded that, 
the nationals of both england and france owned vast amounts of securities and other property in this country which could have been utilized within limits in making the transfer footnote twenty moley after seven years page one o four f brian j c mccurcher transition of power britain's loss of global preeminence to the united states cambridge nineteen ninety nine page one hundred fifty nine Cites Ambassador Lindsay's telegrams reporting that Roosevelt takes total debt as funded, deducts total of payments already made, which he regards as repayment of capital, and suggests that a new agreement be made for repayment of remainder, treating other Allied debtors similarly, subject to tariff agreements and reduced military spending. This impression seems to have come from Roosevelt's emissary, William Bullitt, and reflects how diverse the recommendations were being made by Roosevelt's staff. End of footnote 20. As chapter 5 will show, American diplomats were still making the latter point in 1940 to 1941, when they were negotiating Lend-Lease and U.S. support of Britain and the rest of Europe against the Nazi aggression that ultimately drew the nation into World War II. Moley brusquely dismissed the transfer problem that Keynes had emphasized in the 1920s. Selling sterling on the foreign exchange market to buy dollars to pay foreign debts was quite different from buying arms for domestic currency. In the former case, sterling's exchange rate would fall, but cutting back arms spending would not save foreign exchange unless these arms had to be imported, something unlikely given Britain's large-scale unemployment. But neither Moley nor the president distinguished domestic from foreign exchange spending. Neither was well-versed in economic theory. Moley reminisced that perhaps the limitation of our economic expertise was an advantage, for at least they had not been indoctrinated by the internationalist orthodoxy that things would automatically right themselves in the fairly short run. The problem with Republican policy, he reiterated, was that the advice sought by Stimson and Mills came mostly from the New York banking community. Footnote 21, Moley, The First New Deal, page 224, end of footnote 21. Moley recognized that future payments on the debts would be small and far between, but nonetheless believed that they should remain on the books. So long as they were alive, their presence would be a warning, however slight, that the European debtors should not look upon the United States as a source of new help. He defended his actions in 1933 by depicting Lausanne as a minor Munich, arguing that the cut in German reparations had been nothing less than an invitation to the Germans, who looked upon France and England as paper tigers, to dedicate themselves to rearmament in anticipation of another war. It followed that, to make what Tugwell called the grand gesture of reducing or cancelling the debts would seem ironical to the people of the country who were themselves sorely burdened with private indebtedness, impoverished and mortgage-laden farmers, small businesses that could barely borrow enough from the banks to stay alive, big businesses that were depressed for lack of customers, for a presidential candidate who had so seriously planned to attack the problem of debt on the home front to make international concessions after election would be resented footnote 22 ibid page 58 end of footnote 22 the european delegates hoped that the allies germans and americans might settle what had been left in abeyance at lausanne matters moved toward a head on the eve of roosevelt's inauguration when britain presented a seven-point memorandum 
British Policy on Economic Problems. Footnote 23, British Policy on Economic Problems in Foreign Relations of the United States, 1933, Volume 1, pages 465 to 471. For the URL, see the text, page 101. The following summary relies mainly on Moley, The First New Deal, page 412. End of footnote 23. Hoping to ward off U.S. isolationism, it stated that the depression cannot be effectively remedied by isolated action. Hence, solutions must be sought through international action on a very broad front, as the preparatory commission of experts established at Lausanne had recommended. In keeping with Roosevelt's own ideas, the note's first objective endorsed a rise in the general level of prices, especially of farm commodities. Toward this end, it endorsed a coordinated monetary policy in both Britain and the United States to ensure the provision of cheap and abundant short-term money. Low national interest rates were thus the second aim, but if debtor countries were not freed from having to pay their debts to the United States, they would have to keep their own interest rates high so as to attract foreign loans to provide the dollars to make these payments. A third objective was currency stabilization, something that could not be done without reducing the debt burden which was the major factor destabilizing currencies. Only an alleviation of these payments would promote the fourth objective endorsed by the British note, abolition of the exchange controls that threatened to restrict world trade. A related fifth aim was to relax trade barriers such as quotas and tariffs. That ran counter to the agricultural protectionism advocated by U.S. farm interests, soon written into law by the New Deal's Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, which required protectionist trade quotas, and, as for hopes by Western U.S. Senators, for bimetallism, that is, inclusion of silver alongside gold in world central bank reserves, the British note claimed that the problem of low silver prices would be solved, not by a rise in the price of silver as such, but through a rise in the general level of commodity prices. Finally, the British listed their most important objective, U.S. assurance that the debt issue would soon be settled at an international conference. The existence of these debts constitutes, as the Preparatory Commission have said, an insuperable barrier to economic and financial reconstruction, and there is no prospect of the World Economic Conference making progress if this barrier cannot be removed. Roosevelt's New Deal countered this British agenda. It did endorse higher price levels and lower interest rates, but as far as currency stabilization was concerned, Roosevelt was about to take America off gold and wasn't prepared to even begin discussing a settlement of the war debts. MacDonald and Herriot Visit Washington After taking office on March 4, 1933, just five weeks after Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, President Roosevelt declared a bank holiday, repealed prohibition, provided unemployment relief, and endorsed agricultural price supports. The latter presupposed import quotas for the crops whose prices were being supported. 
On April 17th, Senator Elmer Thomas of Oklahoma added an amendment authorizing the president to issue greenbacks, fix the ratio of the value of silver to gold, and provide for free silver coinage and fix the weight of the gold dollar by proclamation. Three days later, on April 20th, Roosevelt cut the dollar loose from gold to find its own level. His objective was to reflate prices according to the theory of Cornell economics professor George F. Warren, that domestic prices would rise in proportion to the dollar's depreciation against gold. Higher prices would alleviate the depression by making it easier for farmers, workers, and businesses to pay their debts. The House of Representatives and the Senate both backed the inflationary policies deemed necessary to reduce the debt burden and speed economic recovery. For the United States, Walter Lippmann wrote, National policies were bound to prevail. In such a conflict, they always do prevail in any powerful nation. Dollar depreciation increased U.S. export competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis Europe, wiping out much of the trade advantage that Britain had gained by going off gold the previous year, and aggravating Europe's already debt-ridden balance of payments position. The basic problem with such a policy was that, despite the Agricultural Adjustment Act and National Recovery Act having the aim of limiting foreign competition in the domestic market, the administration advocated that foreign countries could open their markets in the face of increasing U.S. trade surpluses and still pay their dollar-denominated war debts. Footnote 24, Council of Foreign Relations, The United States in World Affairs, 1933, pages Roman numeral 20 to Roman numeral 21 and 125. End of footnote 24. Britain began to prepare for the worst. In May, it negotiated trade preferences with Argentina, extending the imperial preference system whose foundation had been laid at Ottawa a year earlier. Roosevelt approved an increase in U.S. cotton tariffs, and the trade wars of the 1930s began to gain momentum. Still hoping that the conflict could be resolved without an international break, Prime Minister MacDonald planned to visit Washington to seek U.S. commitment for the London Economic Conference. His cabinet warned him not to make the trip, without advance assurance from us that the June 15th debt payment could be postponed. Otherwise, it was feared, he would be embarrassed by a failure in what had become Britain's major economic concern. The United States refused to provide any such advance commitment, but MacDonald came anyway, accompanied by Sir Frederick Leith Ross, chief economic advisor to His Majesty's government, and Sir Robert Van Siddart, permanent undersecretary of state for foreign affairs footnote twenty five moley after seven years page one hundred ninety nine ff end of footnote twenty five roosevelt invited former premier hero to the meeting in recognition of his having risked his political career by trying to get france to pay its december debt installment hero was flanked by the economic adviser charles rist french treasury adviser jean j bezot Robert Coliandre of the French Foreign Office and Paul Elbel of the Ministry of Commerce. Italy sent Guido Jung and a staff. Germany sent Hallmar Schacht. But Roosevelt's act of cutting the dollar free of gold had thrown the world's financial system into a turmoil, just as these visitors were crossing the Atlantic, with the London Conference less than three months away. Meanwhile, 
The State Department drafted a reply to the British proposals for a joint statement of principles that would guide the London negotiations. The task initially fell to the suspect internationalist Norman Davis, but Moley quickly eliminated him from further involvement in the negotiations and set about preparing a reply himself, rejecting the idea that the maintenance of the debts, whether the installments were paid or not paid, would in any way hinder recovery here or abroad. Footnote 26. Moley, The First New Deal. Page 413. End of footnote 26. James Warburg, a former Bank of New York official, worked out a formula to settle the debt issue. Nicknamed the Bunny, it proposed to cancel all interest charges and substantially write down the remaining principal. In the light of the depressed conditions that had arisen since the last agreements had been made in the 1920s, the debtors would reaffirm their obligations by depositing a note for the new amounts with the bank for international settlements. These notes were to be secured by a deposit of 25% of the principal amount in gold bullion plus another 5% in gold or silver. The remainder of the debts would be dealt with by a sinking fund agreement under which each debtor would make certain annual payments to the bank for international settlements, which would use the payments to buy U.S. Treasury securities. The proposal would have turned the bank for international settlements from an instrument designed to collect German reparations into one in charge of transferring European payments to the United States. European tribute would finance America's budget deficit, leaving U.S. revenue to be spent on goods and services to help pull the country out of depression. Footnote 27. Moley, The First New Deal. Page 414. See also Moley, After Seven Years. Page 202. End of footnote 27. Upon the arrival of the European leaders, Roosevelt informed them that this was as far as the United States would go toward resolving the debt issue. As for the dollar's falling value, he assured them that he wanted it to find a natural level, defined as one that would restore prosperity for America. That meant a much lower exchange rate of the dollar against gold. There is little reason to devaluation unless one does so to excess, that is, by enough to change existing trade patterns in one's favor. The dollar's fall aimed to win export trade from countries that kept their currencies on the gold standard at the existing exchange rates. Footnote 28, Moley, After Seven Years, page 204, end of footnote 28. Roosevelt nonetheless persuaded the Europeans that he was eager to resolve the problem, and they left Washington under the impression that a final solution would be reached at the London Economic Conference, but they were mainly reading in their hopes. The joint statement Roosevelt issued with MacDonald was carefully written to be non-committal, providing the United States with escape clauses stipulating that an improved gold standard should operate without depressing prices and when circumstances permit. Footnote 29. Moley, The First New Deal, page 403. End of footnote 29. Just what all this meant about stabilizing exchange rates and opening markets in the near future was not clear. Already in January, Wheeler-Bennett had noted how urgent the world debt crisis had become. 
the flagging hopes and expectations of the world are centered on the economic conference it may be the last upward effort that brings the world from the brink of disaster on to firm ground it may be the last despairing struggle before the final plunge by the date of the opening of the conference president roosevelt will have been inaugurated and the world will know whether or not he will use the reduction of war debts to bargain for the reduction of tariffs footnote thirty wheeler bennett the wreck of reparations page two hundred fifty seven end of footnote thirty europe's financial cohesion was at stake and its leaders dared not look into the abyss that the americans seemed to be welcoming without much concern part of the problem wheeler bennett noted was that when macdonald harrow and other statesmen spoke with roosevelt he would nod his head and might reply fine which they took as an indication of agreement it merely meant that he understood what they were saying not that he was agreeing with them he also adopted a tactic that would be typical of u s negotiating policy over many decades when an agreement became uncomfortable he was adept at contriving an escape and when that failed he would simply repudiate it but for the time being roosevelt appeared to many americans as well as europeans as an internationalist and in view of america's dominant role in the world economy even as the chief sponsor of the london conference many praised roosevelt for taking on a position of world leadership that he had no intention of adopting it would have involved forgiving european debts and committing the united states to free trade instead of agricultural and industrial protectionism but only americans formed roosevelt's electorate internationalists such as hole showed little understanding that in any actual conflict between his domestic program and a program of international economics the president would decide in favor of his domestic program footnote thirty one moley after seven years page two hundred seven end of footnote thirty one the new deal was taking a go-it-alone position such as no major nation apart from the new fascist powers had done the london economic conference was set to open on june twelfth because as fdr pointed out the conference ought not to meet earlier when congress would still be in session and because as macdonald pointed out the conference ought not to meet later or it would run on into the grouse season and all the british statesmen would walk out on it what with congress on the one side and grouse on the other agreement on june twelfth was a triumph of diplomacy footnote thirty two ibid page two hundred six into footnote thirty two with that having been decided macdonald sailed away followed by Herriot, three days later end of chapter three Super Imperialism The Economic Strategy of American Empire by Michael Hudson. Chapter 4 America's New Deal Puts Its Own Economy First, 1933 to 1940. To help prepare for the London meeting, Frederick William Lyth Ross, who had just been named economic advisor to the UK government, was asked to stay behind in Washington in early May. When confronted with the bunny, he cried poverty, explaining that economic and political conditions in England made payment in June exceedingly unlikely. Financially, it would be a very great hardship on the British to make the payment. 
politically it would be dangerous for the government to ignore the public opinion that Britain could not and should not be expected to make full payment. And yet, the British did not like the idea of default. The very word was offensive to their moral sensibilities. It ran counter to every precept of that system of financial ethics they had grown great by observing. Might President Roosevelt not persuade Congress to agree to a temporary suspension of the June 15th payment on the ground, say, that non-payment would interrupt the negotiations for a final settlement, or perhaps on the ground that it would jeopardize the economic conference? Footnote 1. Moley, The First New Deal, page 402. See also Benjamin D. Rhodes, United States Foreign Policy, in the Interwar Period, Greenwood, 2001, page 101F. End of footnote 1. Moley and Lou Douglas gave a flat no. In negotiating with the British, wrote Moley about the Washington meetings, our trump cards were the debts and the freedom of action permitted by the terms of the Thomas Amendment. We had already made it clear that Congress had spoken the final word about compromising the debts. The reluctance of Roosevelt about stabilization was wholly in the interest of our own recovery. Public opinion in Britain might favor annulling the debts, but... There existed a public opinion here as well as in Great Britain. That public opinion would not permit the president to make such a move. Congress was in no mood to do anything but exact payment. Leith Ross pressed on, asking whether, to avoid an outright breakdown of negotiations, Britain might refrain from paying, but call it a suspension rather than default. We thought not, writes Moley, adding that, of all this, Secretary Hull knew nothing, by FDR's express orders. Footnote 2, Moley, after seven years, page 210F, end of footnote 2. Hull wanted Roosevelt to save the British and the conference, but to Roosevelt saving America meant disappointing Britain and other European debtor countries. While he was all for alleviating domestic U.S. debt, he was not for lifting the burden of foreign debt owed to the United States. What was so fateful about London's opening date of June 12th was that the quarterly inter-ally debt service was due the 15th. The Europeans probably expected debt payments to be held in suspension during the negotiations, so a showdown seemed inevitable. Prime Minister MacDonald wrote a letter upholding the position taken by Leith Ross, that Britain was in no position to make the June 15th payment. Was there perhaps a nice way of handling this, so as to make it appear perfectly natural, with a show of American understanding to keep the internationalist spirit alive? Default would cause hostility in both countries. The American man on the street would blame the British for defaulting, and the British man on the street would blame the United States for forcing Britain into the position of defaulting. Couldn't a request be made to Congress for general powers to deal with the debt situation pending negotiations for a final settlement? Footnote 3, Ibid, page 210, FF. End of footnote 3. Britain and the rest of Europe still hoped for the scenario that had seemed likely under the debt commission set up under Lausanne and endorsed by Hoover's team. At best, a debt annulment perhaps in exchange for some trade concessions to U.S. exporters, and at worst, a kind of young plan for the Allied powers. 
but Roosevelt and his advisers had been turning down that option since November. Roosevelt replied to MacDonald on May 22nd that he was determined not to let any aspect of the debt question get mixed up with the issues before the conference. He asked Britain if it could pay a part of what it owed. Later that week, he decided not to send Congress the Reciprocal Tariff Treaty Bill, on which Hull and the Internationalists had set their hearts. Footnote 4, Ibid, page 213. The bill later was enacted as the Reciprocal Tariff Act of 1934, also known as the Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act of 1934. End of footnote 4. It was not yet clear just how destabilizing the floating, that is, sinking, dollar would prove to be. Treasury Secretary William Wooden, Budget Director Lewis Douglas, James Warburg, and most other conservative experts believed that the dollar, if left to itself, would not sink more than 18 or 20 percent, which, in relation to sterling at the moment, would mean about $4 a pound as compared with the current quotation of around $3.50 and the old par of $4.87. The pound had fallen severely, and the U.S. devaluation would not even make up half the difference under this scenario. But by May 20th, the dollar was depreciating so rapidly that it looked like the pound would be lifted back above the $4 level. U.S. officials blamed the dollar's plunge on large speculators, but did nothing, explaining that economic fundamentals would correct the decline in due course. Roosevelt proved to be more astute in taking the position in private, of course, that the dollar might sink to lows that the experts hadn't conceived of. He was in no hurry to stabilize until he was sure he was going to get the best bargain there was to be got. With the dollar falling as it was in the exchange markets, our stock and bond prices were leaping upward, and our commodity prices soaring. New purchasing power was being created in this country, he held. This stimulating movement must not be stopped. This was recovery, not a dangerous speculative spree. When the British warned that no progress could be made at the conference without knowing just how far the United States intended to let the dollar plummet, Roosevelt told the U.S. delegation to London to shun the subject of stabilization like the plague. Footnote 5, Ibid, page 215F, end of footnote 5. Trying to soften the U.S. position, Britain's ambassador, Lindsay, explained why Britain deserved some sympathy from us. They had never once failed to make their payments. The total they had paid to date was $1,447,270,000. Whereas the French, who originally owed us almost as much as the British, had paid us only $200,000,000. Furthermore, a very considerable debt was owed them by European nations. How could they forgive their debtors if we were unwilling to forgive ours? This curious use of the sacred mandate of the Lord's Prayer was not lost upon us. Moley did not have an answer that addressed the issue but blamed Congress. The executive branch would not take responsibility for resolving the debt issue. Roosevelt explained that he could not seek power to postpone payments without a tremendous uproar in an already rebellious Congress and rejected Britain's request to make only a token payment of $5 million to be lumped with the payment of December and considered as a payment on account 
toward an amount to be determined in the final settlement. In the first place, Moly explained, the word token in the United States conveyed a wholly different idea than it did in England. Token to us meant a small worthless coin, and five million dollars looked like just such a paltry token. So we dickered, like traders in an eastern bazaar. In the end, the British came through with the offer of a ten million dollar payment. This was to constitute an acknowledgment of the debt pending a final settlement, their no said. We accepted the offer. The way was now open to an amicable adjustment of the whole matter, an adjustment which was never achieved. Footnote 6, Ibid, page 220F. Mully adds that the $10 million involved an outlay of only $7 million by them, the British, because they took advantage of the President's authorization, inserted by Key Pittman in the Thomas Amendment, to accept up to $200 million in war debt payments in silver. At the current price of silver in the world market, the British could get by on a $10 million payment with approximately $7 million. End of footnote 6. In fact, observed Herbert Face, a State Department economic advisor held over from the Hoover administration, it is more probable that the default washed away the remnants of Roosevelt's tolerance for the French effort to cause us to return to the international gold standard at a fixed rate to the franc and made him more determined not to let British authorities ease him into an agreement about the relative pound-dollar value, which might be to Britain's advantage. Footnote 7, Ibid, page 182, end of footnote 7. Negotiations with the French were more unpleasant. They sent a note, announcing that they would defer the June payment, adding the droll touch that France by no means intended to break unilaterally engagements entered into. The curt U.S. reply remarked that France had missed the December 15th payment and had not shown any desire even to discuss the problem. What annoyed the U.S. team was that, unlike Britain, France had a relatively large supply of gold and appeared to have been able to pay its December installment, but neither confessed inability to pay nor offered payment of even a small amount on account, which seemed to us completely faithless. Likewise, when Italy's ambassador offered to pay $1 million on account, we reminded him that the payment of $1 million on a total due of 13545438 dollars would be regarded in the United States as insubstantial that in fact it looked to us like the kind of a tip which one gave in a very unfashionable restaurant. But it was impossible to force them up. Footnote 8, Ibid, page 222F. See also Moley, The First New Deal, page 26, end of footnote 8. A bizarre indeed. On May 20th, just before the U.S. delegation was to sail for London, Moley gave a speech in which he urged international delegates to the conference to recognize that world trade, after all, is only a small percentage of the trade of the United States. This means that our domestic policy is of paramount importance. Footnote 9. Quoted in Herbert Fay's 1933, Characters in Crisis, Boston. 1966, page 171F, 
End of footnote 9. It also meant that the United States was in a position to do pretty much what it wanted. By the time the London Conference convened on Monday, June 12th, the dollar had depreciated 20% against the gold block currencies. Foreign countries were coming to recognize that while they were seeking to stabilize their currencies, the United States believed that its stabilization at too early a date would jeopardize the gains made during the preceding two months. Footnote 10. Council on Foreign Relations, the United States in World Affairs, 1933, page 125, end of footnote 10. Next to the debt issue, currency stabilization would become the area that broke up the conference in disarray and inaugurated the competitive depreciations that became so corrosive a characteristic of the 1930s. Roosevelt's bombshell breaks up the London Economic Conference. The American delegation was led by Secretary of State Hull, whose internationalist hopes were undercut by Roosevelt during the conference. Former Governor James M. Cox of Ohio, the Democratic presidential candidate in 1920, was named vice chairman. He was a newspaper publisher with conservative monetary views, mildly low tariff. Among the technicians were Feiss and Warburg. The leading politician was Key Pittman, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a high-tariff, pro-inflationary advocate from the silver-producing state of Nevada, of whom Feiss commented, He was mean. He cared little or nothing about any foreign country. His interest in monetary policies was centered on improving the prices and prospects of silver mined in Nevada, and neighboring states. Eager to do something for silver, he was more sympathetic than any other member of the delegation to the increasingly unorthodox monetary views of Roosevelt. Footnote 11, Ibid, page 173. Molly, who proved to be most influential, was sent over to London when the meetings were already underway. I didn't think much of the conference prospects, he wrote in his memoirs. I didn't think we could obtain from it anything of substantial value to this country. He was interested almost exclusively in the domestic picture rather than in the foreign. Footnote 12, Moley, after seven years, page 217 FF. End of footnote 12. Signs en route hardly were auspicious for an agreement between the United States and Europe. Roosevelt had been considering legislation that ultimately would become the Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act of 1934, authorizing him to negotiate tariff cuts. But, midway across the Atlantic, Hull heard from the President that he had decided not to ask Congress to pass the new law affecting the tariff. Hull realized that unless it did, other governments would be dubious of our intention to reverse the trend to higher and more comprehensive restrictions. Footnote 13, Face, quoted in the United States in World Affairs, 1933, pages 173 and 175, end of footnote 13. 
He warned Roosevelt that this might reduce the delegation to a passive role in the conference, as the United States already had ruled out negotiations on the debt issue and exchange rate stability, without an agreement to halt the dollar devaluation vis-a-vis other currencies, and without negotiated tariff reductions and a waiving of intergovernmental debt, the United States had little to offer. Foreign governments had little opportunity to do much besides defaulting on their inter-ally debts and trying to devalue their own currencies against the dollar in an attempt to make their exports competitive. In his welcoming speech, Prime Minister MacDonald brought up the forbidden subject of inter-ally debts, which U.S. representatives accused of being a breach of promise. The Europeans, for their part, were disturbed by events on the currency front, as the pound rose to $4.18 against the dollar, just the opposite direction from the rumored British and French hope to stabilize it at $3.50. On Tuesday, a fight developed over who would become chairman of the conference's monetary committee, France's foreign minister, George Bonnet, or the American James Cox. Bonnet addressed himself directly to Cox, saying that France would not look with favor upon the selection of someone to head the monetary committee who comes from a country that has recently gone off the gold standard cox rejoined nor will the united states look with favor upon the election of a man presented by a country which has repudiated its debts this crackling exchange was a sign of the thunderclaps in the atmosphere that hovered over the conference even as it was convening footnote 14 ibid page 180 MacDonald did not help matters by promising both parties the chairmanship which was awarded to Cox when Bonnet agreed to become the committee's rapporteur. When Secretary Hull failed to appear later that day at the hour appointed for his speech, the Europeans suspected that this was a rebuke for MacDonald's mention of the war debts, but the reason was simply that he had not finished writing his speech. In fact, that day saw Warburg work with the New York Federal Reserve Bank and the Bank of England to devise a plan to maintain exchange rates within a 3% spread across the franc, and to earmark up to $60 million for each institution to spend on maintaining a dollar-pound ratio of about $4. By Thursday, June 15th, the dollar rose as sterling fell to $4.02. Stock and bond prices swooped and soared to reflect the dollar's gyrations. $4.05 appeared to be a likely stabilization level, perhaps even $4. Montague Norman of the Bank of England and Clement Moray of the Bank of France made a virtually peremptory demand for currency stabilization in this range, but the American delegation said this was impossible. The essence of Roosevelt's plan, after all, was to devalue the dollar so as to raise U.S. prices. Back at the White House, a War Council of Wooden, under Secretary of the Treasury Dean Ackeson, and Moley decided that while agreement on the $4 middle rate would have seemed like a good trade in late April, in mid-June it was preposterous. $4.20 would have been near the mark. Footnote 15, Moley, After Seven Years, page 228, FF. End of footnote 15. Moley thought that $4.25 was about the upper limit the pound should reach, but didn't put this in writing, thinking it wise to give the Europeans a good fright to show who really was in control. The dollar continued to fall as Roosevelt made it clear that he would not set a stabilization target. 
On June 17th, with Congress adjourned, Roosevelt asked Moley to go to London to make sure that the U.S. delegation adhered to the hard line he had committed them to follow, and to report directly to Roosevelt, not formally as part of the delegation itself, which would have made him subject to Hull's authority. His instructions were that America might reach some ameliorative stabilization agreement, perhaps with a high and low, of $4.25 and $4.05, for a midpoint of $4.15. If that could be contrived without the shipment of gold from this country, and without checking the magnificent advance of American prices, which had followed our departure from gold in April. But by the time Moley landed at Plymouth, England on June 27th, the pound had risen to $4.30, the dollar's lowest exchange rate since the Civil War. The next day, sterling reached $4.43, closing at $4.37.5. FDR's bargaining tactics had succeeded beyond his wildest imagining between June 17th and June 20th, describes Moley. The foreign nations now believed that he would not stabilize. They accepted this as a fact. They asked only that he make some gesture, some small gesture, that would in no way limit his freedom of action on the dollar and that would nevertheless tend to discourage the mad exchange speculation of the preceding three weeks. Footnote 16, Ibid, pages 230, 235FF, and 245. End of footnote 16. Britain and France could have maintained parity with the dollar by devaluing their own currencies against gold. But whereas Roosevelt welcomed inflation, MacDonald warned about Europe's phobia of inflation and the panic this was creating throughout Holland, Switzerland, and France. That anti-inflationary attitude was precisely what led Roosevelt to dismiss the idea of stabilizing the dollar, even for the duration of the conference. It continued to fall, and by June 28th was down to 76.3% of its pre-devaluation value. France, Belgium, Switzerland, and Holland announced that unless it stabilized, they too would have to abandon gold. A speculative panic ensued, and even Moly came to favor a message that would serve at least as a symbolic gesture, however innocuous, that the United States wanted to help stabilize the world's financial system. Footnote 17. Ibid, page 249, end of footnote 17. The big three representatives drafted a message to calm world markets, but, with characteristic subtlety, the French had twisted some phrases ever so slightly to make the declaration possibly capable of interpretation as stabilization. Moley insisted that their version be brought in line with the Anglo-American draft before submitting it to Roosevelt for his approval. Roosevelt had chosen precisely this time to go on vacation, however. He was on Campobello Island, unreachable by phone. The U.S. delegation called Wooden's home in New York, where Bernard Baruch, Dean Acheson and George L. Harrison of the New York Federal Reserve Bank were at his bedside as he was sick. They hadn't yet received the draft, which was going through the laborious process of being coded at both ends of the transmission. Moley and General Electric President Gerard Swope phoned back to assure them that the draft statement couldn't possibly obligate us to ship gold. It would not check the steady rise of American prices insofar as that rise was based upon the sound revival of business. At most, it would check only the ultra-speculative aspects of that rise. It would be a better bargain than any Roosevelt had in mind when I last saw him, since it expressed no more than detached, though sympathetic, interest in the gold standard, and it would keep the conference from breaking up as it threatened to do. Footnote 18. Ibid. 
pages 251 and 253, end of footnote 18. But Roosevelt still could not be reached. He was sailing back down to Washington on the Indianapolis, accompanied by Henry Morgenthau, Jr., and Lewis Howe. Cut off from advice from the U.S. delegation in London, Moley's assistant believed that he deliberately designed his vacation to avoid responsibility for what might happen. As it did happen, however, he emerged as the man who wrecked the whole affair. Footnote 19, Moley, the First New Deal, page 432, end of footnote 19. He had implicitly assumed a sponsorship of the conference with MacDonald and Herriot, but was not prepared to commit America internationally until the monetary situation was put in order at home. Finally, on Saturday, July 2nd, as... Practically everyone connected with the delegation was starting out for Cliveden to attend a garden party given by Lady Astor. The coded message from the president began to come through. It came as a bombshell, being a tirade against rigid and arbitrary stabilization. Footnote 20, Moley, after seven years, page 255. End of footnote 20. Regarding statements that the United States would join with other central banks in fighting inflation, Roosevelt did not know how governments could check speculation. How could one distinguish between shifts in the exchange rate that were justified from those which were unjustified? His message repudiated currency stabilization entirely. I would regard it as a catastrophe amounting to a world tragedy if the great conference of nations called to bring about a more real and permanent financial stability and a greater prosperity to the masses of all nations should, in advance of any serious effort to consider these broader problems, allow itself to be diverted by the proposal of a purely artificial and temporary experiment affecting the monetary exchange of a few nations only. The sound internal economic situation of a nation is a greater factor in the well-being than the price of its currency in changing terms of the currency of other nations. Old fetishes of so-called international bankers are being replaced by efforts to plan national currencies. Gold or gold and silver can well continue to be a metallic reserve behind currencies, but this is not the time to dissipate gold reserves. That is not the time to spend them on stabilizing foreign exchange rates. Footnote 21, Moley, The First New Deal, page 453, end of footnote 21. It was less the substance of this message that shocked us as we read it in Claridge's than its tone of belligerence, Moley remembers. What the Europeans had wanted was simply an idea of cooperation from America, what they got instead was to be told to get lost. Roosevelt wanted to raise the U.S. price level and was not going to let foreign complaints about the dollar's falling exchange rate stand in the way. As the world's major creditor and largest economy, America really did not have to listen to anyone else. He seemed to be sending a message to the world that the U.S. government would not be available to help extricate it from a financial tangle that the United States itself had caused, largely by taking a narrow-minded position with regard to the inter-allied debts. In Lippmann's words, stabilizing the dollar's exchange value would have 
meant that the administration must surrender its independence of action in monetary matters and fasten the American price level to the gold price level in the outer world. The gold price level was, however, too low to permit the restoration of the equilibrium in America. There was nothing further for the London Conference to do once the American government had decided it must have a free hand in monetary policy. Footnote 22 the United States in World Affairs, 1933, pages Roman numeral 20 to Roman numeral 21, end of footnote 22. The message shocked even the American delegates, because they had been careful to phrase the proposed statement in a way that did not bind Roosevelt to stabilize the dollar. They felt there had been a misunderstanding, and saw that it had wrecked the conference. The reading of The Bombshell completely demoralized Hull and all the rest of the delegation but Pittman. Three days later, on July 6th, Warburg resigned. Because he neither felt that he could interpret the president's new objective, which seemed to be a currency based on commodity prices, nor believed that the president's ideas had crystallized sufficiently to enable the conference to proceed. Footnote 23. Moley. After seven years, page 261, C. James Warburg, The Money Muddle, New York, 1934, page 121, end of footnote 23. Littman helped prepare a press release, but little remained for the delegates to talk about. A 10% across-the-board reduction in tariffs was suggested, but was deemed not consistent with recent legislation in the United States authorizing the imposition of new tariffs in connection with a national effort to raise prices, and it did not remain long before the conference. Footnote 24, The United States in World Affairs, 1933, page 139, end of footnote 24. The United States claimed special exceptions to free trade and was not averse to devaluing the dollar in order to obtain export price advantages. What soon was to become the Agricultural Adjustment Act imposed restrictive quotas on all foreign farm products competing with those produced by American farmers. The conference adjourned on July 27th. As Professor William Brown observed, it split apart as the result of four great negatives. The countries applying the new protection refused to modify their systems of trade restriction unless currency stability was assured. The countries on the gold standard, many of which had had bitter experience of currency inflation, refused to accept a policy of price raising as the major instrument of economic reconstruction. Great Britain, though favorable to price raising, refused to unbalance her budget to achieve it or to embark upon a great program of public works with that end in view. The United States refused to allow her own program of price raising and of public works to be interfered with by currency stabilization. Footnote 25. William Adams Brown. The Gold Standard Reinterpreted, 1914 to 1934. New York, 1940. Page 1286. End of footnote 25. Roosevelt's focus was domestic prices and American money regardless of what foreign exchange rates might be. Footnote 26, Moley, After Seven Years, page 256, end of footnote 26. 
It was indeed wise for him to use dollar devaluation to hasten reflation of prices in the United States and short-sighted of the gold bloc countries to cling rigidly to their gold parities, a policy that bankrupted them in short order. What was not forgivable was his use of dollar devaluation specifically as a means of economic warfare against an already impoverished Europe simultaneous with devaluing the dollar which made it impossible for europe to repay its inter-ally debts by means of running a trade surplus with the united states roosevelt insisted that these debts be honored regardless of whether the allies were receiving reparations funds from germany it was this insistence not dollar devaluation that fragmented the world economy during 1931 to 1933 only the United States seemed to perceive the need for government to take the lead in abandoning the creditor-oriented monetary philosophy to which Europe continued to adhere, even in the face of its own debtor position vis-à-vis -vis the United States. Foreign experts simply couldn't imagine what Roosevelt meant. Despite their debtor position internationally, their concern was to support the purchasing power of creditors by preventing inflation, and a hard-money gold standard was the way to do this. Lowering the dollar's gold value was a key to Roosevelt's almost populist attempt to inflate prices so as to reduce the domestic U.S. debt burden and help the economy recover. At the same time, he saw that a pillar of America's international strength lay in U.S. creditor leverage over its European allies, owing heavy war debts. European governments pointed out that these debts were beyond their ability to carry without suffering a fall in their exchange rates and thereby destabilizing world trade. Commodity prices would not reflect relative economic efficiency in the face of currency values dominated by capital transfers to pay intergovernmental debts. Members of Roosevelt's cabinet such as Hull recognized that a precondition for stable trade was currency stability, but as far as domestic price levels were concerned, what Europe wanted was incompatible with U.S. aims. That is why Roosevelt acted the way he did. His primary focus on raising U.S. prices led him to reject the Joint International Declaration on Monetary Policy, proposed by his own delegation. Roosevelt's refusal to stabilize the U.S. price level in terms of gold in 1933 was not a hostile act in itself. John Maynard Keynes defended him in a July 4th article for the London Daily Mail, entitled President Roosevelt is Magnificently Right. He was one of the few monetary theorists not to take a pro-creditor side regarding the purchasing power of debt claims over the economy's property, goods, and labor. Winston Churchill also supported Roosevelt and criticized the gold standard countries. Visiting Roosevelt back in Washington on July 14th, Moley found the president in a state of egregious satisfaction and good humor. He felt business was improving and so was his popularity, for the rejection of Europe always has played well in American politics. Lewis Howe summed up matters. Franklin hasn't done anything so popular as his rejection of the declaration since the bank crisis. There were no regrets about the way things had gone in London. Footnote 27. Ibid. Pages 270F and 273, end of footnote 27. An even deeper problem was Europe's worldview regarding debt, a view in thrall to a creditor-oriented mentality that led its governments to pay the United States even at the cost of deranging their exchange rates and imposing monetary austerity. Europe could have joined in the populist U.S. anti-creditor stance, but the French, and most British, sought to protect their domestic savers large and small. 
France had a pro-creditor rentier mentality of middle-class and wealthier individuals living off their bond holdings. Britain thought of itself as the paradigmatic creditor, having based its imperial power on its financial control, not least over the United States, prior to World War I. Unable to make a U-turn to reflect their new status as international debtors, British and French policymakers greeted Roosevelt's monetary policy innovations with a shocked cognitive dissonance. European inability to create an alternative. To most Europeans and to American economic historians as well, America had rejected the role of world leadership. Roosevelt had thrown down the gauntlet. For a generation, Europeans would remember the message as the one that fractured European hopes for recovery. Yet to Roosevelt, it seemed simply to be an announcement of how the United States was going about its own economic recovery. It acted unilaterally in pursuit of an isolationist policy based on its own domestic needs leaving the international situation as a residual to be settled later. But in the face of European rigidity, this U.S. policy made economic depression inevitable for Europe and contributed mightily to World War II. That was not the intent of Roosevelt and his diplomats, but it was the result of their going their own way, and, as it would happen again after 1971, virtually daring Europe to take the lead in creating an alternative international system one that in principle could work independently from the United States. France and the other allied debtors to the United States, with the sole exception of Finland, failed to pay anything at all, as their installments fell due on June 15th. Later on in July, still hoping against hope that we might induce our debtors to take something out of their armament appropriations to pay part of what they owed us, FDR decided to ask Finland to come in first, to discuss the possible adjustment of the debt. He felt that the popularity of Finland with the American people would assure a favorable reception in Congress of a proposal offering Finland a substantial reduction. This might enable us to follow up such a reduction to Finland with considerable debt scalings to other countries. Much to our surprise, Finland notified William Phillips, who was then acting secretary, that she had no desire to carry on negotiations with regard to a readjustment of her debt. She was content to pay in full. This amazing news polished off the scheme. It probably would have got us nowhere anyhow. Footnote 28. Ibid. Page 223F. End of footnote 28. All the other allies suspended their debt payments, and after December 1933, no serious attempt was made to collect these debts. European countries found themselves with little choice but to resort to the autarkic practices that became the characteristic of the 1930s. They were forced either to devalue or to raise tariffs to prevent importing American unemployment into their own countries. Having just emerged from racking inflations, most countries chose to raise their tariffs. The final rejection of exchange stabilization by the United States, concluded Brown, was immediately followed by the definite joining together of the gold standard countries under the leadership of France in a group known as the Gold Bloc. Footnote 29, Brown, The Gold Standard Reinterpreted, 1914-1934, page 1287, end of footnote 29. 
This Blancism became the principal feature of the remainder of the 1930s, but it did not include defeated Germany, nor did it reach out to Japan. The military implications of the breakdown of the London Conference, Face concluded, brought about only greater confusion in international affairs and had marred the friendship between the United States and its former allies. The only beneficiaries were Germany and Japan, who were losing all fear of concerted opposition to their plans for expansion. Footnote 30 Phase, 1933, Characters in Crisis, page 253, end of footnote 30. Roosevelt had declared in 1932 that the United States would not have to cancel the inter-ally debts if America would open its trade doors and let foreigners earn the funds to repay the U.S. government. But then he devalued while keeping the nation's trade closed until June 1934, and by that time Germany had ceased paying reparations. Arthur M. Schlesinger's Coming of the New Deal called Roosevelt's role in the conference deplorable, and another historian pointed out that his decision to reject cooperation with Europe spurred nationalism in Britain, France, and the United States, with each of them searching out new devices for the waging of economic warfare. Footnote 31, Moley, The First New Deal, page 494, quoting Schlesinger's Coming of the New Deal, 1933-1935, New York, 1958, page 229, and Jeanette P. Nichols, Roosevelt's Monetary Diplomacy in 1933, American Historical Review 56, January 1951, page 317, end of footnote 31. In his memoirs, Hull wrote that the collapse of the London Economic Conference played into the hands of such dictator nations as Germany, Japan, and Italy. At London, the bitterest recrimination occurred among the United States, Britain, and France. Henceforth, wrote William F. Luchtenberg, international trade would be directed by national governments as a form of bloodless warfare. Roosevelt, declared Hallmar shocked, had the same idea as Hitler and Mussolini. Take your economic fate in your own hands. Footnote 32. Cordell Hull, Memoirs, New York, 1948, Volume 1, page 268F, and William F. Luchtenberg, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, New York, 1936, page 202F, quoted in Moli Ibid, page 495, end of footnote 32. As the Great Depression spread, countries supported their currencies by an array of trade controls that included tariffs, import quotas, export embargoes, bilateral clearing systems, and barter deals. As Carl Pogliani has remarked of this period, the frantic efforts to protect the external value of the currency as a medium of foreign trade drove the peoples against their will into an autarkized economy. The whole arsenal of restricted measures, which formed a radical departure from traditional economics, was actually the outcome of conservative free trade purposes. Footnote 33. Pogliani, The Great Transformation, page 27, end of footnote 33. At least the outcome of a rigid philosophy of currency stability and the sanctity of international debts, come what may. European countries fought among themselves to export more goods to support foreign rather than domestic consumption and to stabilize their currencies while sacrificing their domestic economies, as they had been doing to repay the international debts to which they had committed themselves. How different this was from America's behavior four decades later when the U.S. Treasury insisted that its own 80 
to $85 billion in debts owed to foreign central banks be effectively wiped off the books by being funded into the world monetary system as paper gold. The more Europe armed and resorted to blocked currency practices, tariff wars, and the other nationalistic paraphernalia of the 1930s, the more antagonistic became American public opinion and foreign policy, and the more self-righteous its refusal to involve itself with Europe's debt and trade problems. If Europe would not follow the U.S. example, that was its own cross to bear. Having devalued the dollar and thus given U.S. exporters a price advantage in world markets, the Roosevelt administration enacted the Trade Agreements Act of 1934, designed to modify existing duties and import restrictions within carefully guarded limits and in such a way as will benefit American agriculture and industry. A House rider stipulated that nothing in the measure should be construed to give any authority to cancel or reduce in any manner any of the indebtedness of any foreign country to the United States. Footnote 34. Council on Foreign Relations. The United States in World Affairs, 1934-1935. to New York, 1936. Page 109. End of footnote 34. This trade act, widely heralded by its supporters as a movement away from the highly protectionist Hawley-Smoot tariff, underlies all subsequent U.S. tariff legislation. While reducing U.S. tariff barriers, it provided authority for the president and his representatives to negotiate reciprocal tariff concessions with other countries, in which American exports anticipated to be the net beneficiary. The whole policy was not a free trade policy, nor did it seek to eliminate all government control of foreign trade, describes William Dybul Jr. This adjusted protectionism differed from past American protectionist policy more in technique than in fundamental concept. However, the primary importance of the whole policy lay in the fact that in 1934, for the first time since the Underwood Act of 1913, United States tariff rates started moving downward, and the apparently irresistible drive toward increased protection was checked. Footnote 35. William DeBold, Jr. New Directions in Our Trade Policy, New York, 1941, pages 3 and 23F. End of footnote 35. The reduction in tariffs from an average 54% in 1933 to 36% in 1940 did increase U.S. imports in specific areas, but U.S. tariff cuts were nullified by the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, which gave absolute protectionism to U.S. farmers by imposing quota restrictions on U.S. farm imports. The U.S. trade surplus, which had been declining since 1929, largely because of foreign emulation of U.S. protectionism, increased from $225 million in 1933 to $1.4 billion in 1940. The strategy of negotiated tariff reductions was by no means one of laying open the U.S. market to foreign exporters, nor did it enable them to earn more dollars to repay their debts to the United States. It would be false to say that the United States provoked World War II out of malice or out of knowledge of the results of insisting on repayment of its war debts by a world utterly unable to repay them. It is true, however, that no act contributed more to the genesis of World War II than the intolerable burdens that the United States imposed on its allies of World War I and threw them on Germany. 
Every U.S. administration from 1917 through the Roosevelt era employed the strategy of compelling repayment of these war debts, above all by Britain. The effect was to splinter Europe so that the continent was laid open politically as an economic province of the United States. America had learned a basic lesson in power politics. Between treasury and treasury, and between central bank and central bank, decisions could be reached of far greater and more enduring significance than those reached in the normal course of diplomacy. Money was the lifeblood of nations. A creditor overwhelming on international account could dominate the actions of equally powerful debtor nations. There were many paths that the United States might have followed to safeguard the integrity of its financial claims on Europe without rupturing the world economy. It could have pursued policies similar to those which it implemented after the Second World War. Sentiments to this end existed in some quarters of Congress. On July 24, 1932, Senator Bora asserted, There can be no reason for urging a reduction or cancellation of these debts other than that it would be in the interest of the people of the United States to do so. Upon that theory, and that alone, it seems to me, is the subject open to discussion. Will a reduction or cancellation bring to the people of the United States an equal or a greater benefit than the amount which they may collect from the debts? Will such a course open foreign markets for the products of the farm and the factory, cause the price level to rise, put an end to unemployment, and thaw out the frozen credits of the banks? I entertain the belief that the cancellation of the debts in connection with and as part of a program including the settlement of the other war problems would have the effect above indicated. Footnote 36 Quoted in Council on Foreign Relations, The United States in World Affairs, 1932, page 185. End of footnote 36. Had the United States relinquished its creditor position vis-a-vis -vis foreign governments, less austerity would have been imposed on Europe's home markets in a futile attempt to transfer intergovernmental debt service. World trade could have developed in more normal circumstances. American capital would have been devoted more to financing industry at home and abroad than to financing the German government's reparation payments and those of the European allies to the U.S. government. That would have helped pave the way for American industrial supremacy to acquire foreign markets in the 1920s and 1930s, while U.S. direct investors might have used their profits on this export trade to buy control of European industry, as occurred in the 1960s. But this policy was beyond the reference points of government officials at the time. There was little enlightened self-interest in U.S. policy during the 1930s, only the crudest of power games. Even so, the government could have used its inter-allied claims as a diplomatic lever, offering to waive them or relend their debt service payments to Europe's governments in exchange for their acquiescence in policies favorable to U.S. interests, including the opening of their markets to U.S. exports. That was essentially Hoover's plan, rejected by Roosevelt. The U.S. government did not yet want to see its economy linked inextricably with those of foreign nations, and did not yet feel secure or powerful enough to endorse free trade. If it were to take responsibility for stabilizing the world economy, it would not do so in any way that would yield its domestic autonomy as to how it should manage its economic affairs. That is why it had refused to join the League of Nations. America would accept world responsibility 
only to the extent that it was a paying proposition financially and commercially. Ironically, the eventual effect of the financial breakdown of 1933 was to increase the U.S. government's accumulation of international financial assets, precisely by catalyzing the movement toward war in Europe. Devaluation of the dollar in 1934 raised the price of gold from $20 to $35 an ounce, increasing the stated value of the country's gold stock and attracting further gold inflows. The U.S. gold stock rose to $7.4 billion, about one-third of the world's monetary gold reserves at that time. By the end of 1937, as war loomed in Europe, U.S. gold holdings had increased to $11.3 billion, more than half of world monetary reserves. This gain resulted neither from trade and investment surpluses nor from other normal economic conditions, but from Europeans and Asians responding to the threat of war by transferring their funds into U.S. securities and bank deposits. Their capital flight was accompanied by a corresponding transfer of gold from Europe's central banks, mainly from Britain, France, and the Netherlands. So extraordinary was this receipt of gold that in December 1937, the U.S. Treasury acted to sterilize it in order to counteract its inflationary potential. Normally, the gold inflow would have increased the U.S. monetary supply. The Treasury, however, borrowed enough funds each month to buy for itself the Federal Reserve System's newly acquired gold adding it to its own account so that the gold inflow would not swell the banking system's credit base. Segregating the gold inflow from the amount needed by the money and credit system negated the normal adjustment process that would have inflated domestic U.S. currency and credit, precisely the policy that the U.S. government was to denounce when European central banks resorted to it defensively in the 1960s in response to the inflationary series of U.S. payments deficits. Gold inflows accelerated as Europe once again became dependent on America for its armaments after Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia and the Anschluss with Austria. The financial effects of World War I between Europe and America thus repeated themselves. After the September 1938 four-power settlement in Munich, the movement of refugee funds from European centers to the United States assumed panic proportions as the pressure upon Czechoslovakia to cede territory to Germany brought Europe to the brink of war. Footnote 37, U.S. Department of Commerce, the balance of international payments to the United States in 1938, Washington, D.C., 1939, page 22. End of footnote 37. Nearly $1 billion flowed into the United States during September and October alone. By the time the United States was forced into the war in 1941, its gold stock had grown to $22.7 billion, three times the 1934 amount. The Second World War erupted not because of strains created by private finance capital, but because of a world bankruptcy in which intergovernmental financial claims played the major role. The debt and reparations tangle rendered nationalism the path of least resistance and made pan-European internationalism impossible. Europe tried to accommodate itself to the shift of world power to the United States without struggle, but America's creditor leverage proved of no avail as long as it refused to take from Britain the role of stabilizing the international financial system or to take payment in the form of imports. Business could not operate as usual without the cooperation of the world's major governments and that of the United States in particular. The presumably automatic adjustment mechanisms regulating private sector international trade and finance could not function beyond rather narrow limits that were far exceeded by the burden of intergovernmental debts. Debt is inherently destabilizing. The mathematics of compound interest 
typically unleashed by national war borrowings, lead debts to grow inexorably without regard to the ability to pay. Something must give, and the harshness of debt terms usually ends up forcing a break in the chain of payments. The international rivalries of the 1930s did not take the form of a new scramble for territories or colonies, but increasingly belligerent attempts just to maintain economic self-sufficiency and international payments balance. As Pogliani observed, Whereas World War I was a simple conflict of powers released by the lapse of the balance of power system, World War II was part of the world upheaval, whose origins lay in the utopian endeavor of economic liberalism to set up a self-regulating market system. Footnote 38, Polanyi, The Great Transformation, page 29, into footnote 38. By 1933, the world economic environment was dominated by intergovernmental debts requiring currency transfers far beyond the surplus-generating capacities of the private sectors in debtor countries to finance. But European countries made no attempt to develop a strategy of making a virtue of their debtor position. Given their greater reliance on foreign trade, they were not in a position to threaten that their default would bring down the U.S. economy as America would threaten Europe and Asia after 1971. European countries did not owe money to America's banking and monetary system, but to the U.S. government, which did not really need the money at the time. That rendered laissez-faire principles anachronistic. Governments henceforth would have to accept responsibility for balancing international trade and payments by negotiating overall agreements and systems rather than via free markets. World War II's fusion of business and government planning to serve military ends established this perception on a permanent and irreversible basis for the industrial nations. Prior to the Second World War, America spurned internationalism because this connoted a financial responsibility that did not seem to pay. It would have entailed writing off U.S. claims to the inter-ally war debts. Even in the 1970s, the U.S. government insisted on keeping these debts on its books. In its 1974 annual report, for instance, the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies announced that, as of December 31st, 1973, the outstanding World War I debt owed to the United States, including unmatured principal and interest, amounted to $25.2 billion, of which $20.8 billion was delinquent. The largest due and unpaid accounts are with the United Kingdom, $9.1 billion, France, $6.4 billion, Germany, $1.6 billion, and Italy, $1.5 billion. The countries with large World War I obligations to the U.S. have never denied the juridical validity of these debts. They have, however, linked payment to the U.S. to the condition of simultaneous payment of World War I reparations by Germany to them in amounts which roughly offset their war debts to the United States. Resolution of the problem of governmental claims against Germany arising out of World War I was deferred until a final general settlement of this matter by the London Agreement on German External Debts, to which the United States is a party, concluded in 1953. This agreement was ratified by the United States Senate and has the status of a treaty. While the United States government has never recognized any legal connection between World War I obligations owed U.S., and reparations claims on Germany, there is a linkage in reality which makes this issue sensitive politically as well as economically. A National Advisory Council working group is studying the matter and is expected to make concrete proposals in the near future. Footnote 39, National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies, 
annual report to the President and to the Congress, July 1st, 1973, to June 30th, 1974, Washington, 1975, page 40. End of footnote 39. Similar paragraphs concluded the National Advisory Council's annual reports throughout the remainder of the 1970s. No new proposal has been made, and the debts remain unpaid. As America entered World War II, the economic strategy broadened to become more long-term and grounded in creating international institutions to serve its interest. The nation's overwhelming creditor position enabled it to insist on a controlling interest in the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, which it used to serve its agricultural and other export interests and investment interests when its balance of payments moved into deepening deficit commencing with the Korean War, leading it to become the world's largest debtor since 1951. By 1971, the United States was virtually daring Europe and Asia to cash in their surplus dollars, confronting them with a dilemma. If they stopped recycling their dollar inflows into U.S. Treasury IOUs, their exchange rates would rise against the dollar. That would hurt their export markets and permit dollar-area producers to gain a share of their own domestic markets unless they protected themselves with American-style tariffs against the depreciating dollar. Neither European nor East Asian politicians and governments were prepared to take an integrated region-wide approach to achieve the scale needed to provide an alternative to following the U.S. lead. They felt locked into accepting U.S. Treasury debt as the basis for their domestic central bank reserves and monetary base. Despite their creditor position, foreign countries were no more able to develop a countervailing strategy as creditors to the United States than they had been able to do in 1933 as debtors. How different Europe's policy in 1971 was from that of the United States in 1933. Speaking for the rural areas threatened with widespread mortgage defaults, Roosevelt's solution was to revalue gold in the hope that this would reflate farm prices and incomes to their 1926 levels, where they had stood when many of the mortgages were taken out. The idea was for inflated crop prices to enable farmers and other debtors to pay their mortgages and other obligations. The fact that this was the path of least legal resistance shows how far attitudes toward debt have changed over time. A similar plunge of land prices, for instance, occurred in Rome in 86 BC. As a result of foreign disturbances, Roman land prices fell by three-quarters, leaving many indebted speculators and absentee owners holding collateral that had plunged in price. The council, L. Valerius Flaccus, reduced debts by three-quarters to reflect the degree to which land prices had fallen. The same correlation between land valuation and debts underlay Caesar's Cessio Bornorum in 49 BC. It saved landholders from having to sell off their real estate under distress conditions by letting them turn it over to their creditors evaluated at the higher pre-Civil War prices. No such solution is available in modern times. That is why Roosevelt felt that the only policy available to him was to inflate the U.S. economy, not write down farm debts or other debts. As a result, both the U.S. and European economies subjected themselves to monetary cartwheels instead of simply writing down the debts, which acted as the immutable constraint to which all other economic relationships had to adjust. 
Except for Keynes, few Europeans were able to understand Roosevelt's scuttling of the London Economic Conference as part of his policy of supporting domestic debtor interests. Europeans expected debtors to acquiesce in whatever their creditors demanded. That ethic explains why both the Allies and Germany in the 1920s were willing to sacrifice their economies trying to pay their war debts, despite their unpayably high magnitude. Exceptionally, however, no such logic led the United States to abandon its global military spending in the 1960s as it became an official debtor to European central banks and their governments. In contrast to using its creditor power in the 1920s to demand payment on legal grounds backed by centuries of pro-creditor ideology, American strategy by 1971 had come to recognize what Europeans did not, as the U.S.-European creditor-debtor relationship was inverted a half-century after the 1920s, the U.S. government did not do what it had demanded of European debtors. It did not sequester the private foreign investments of American companies, but encouraged them to go on acquiring European firms. While erecting unilateral trade barriers without regard for international law and its principles of symmetrical economic practice. There is an old quip that if a man owes a bank $100 and cannot pay, he's in trouble. But if he owes the bank $10 million, it's the bank that is in trouble. As the United States' intergovernmental financial balance shifted from world creditor to world debtor position, U.S. strategists realized that if the debtor owes a large enough amount, its power lies in the ability to threaten the system by their default, bringing down the creditors. Once this wrecking power is recognized and feared by creditors, the debtor is able to lay down the law. America has used this strategy since 1971. European nations had no hint of this potential power in the 1930s, being too small to threaten U.S. solvency by themselves, and unable to work together, especially with Britain supporting the U.S. position, even against its own seeming national interests. Much like third-world countries in modern times, European countries subjected themselves to economic depression, from which they were rescued only by war spending. They ended up letting the debt overhead drive them into a new war, instead of joining together to create an alternative financial system based on an anti-creditor ideology, giving priority to the tangible economy of labor and capital. End of chapter 4